All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another very special episode of the Jim Pier 138 podcast. Today, uh, we have some echo. Um, <laughs> uh, we have uh, three very cool people here to talk about the uh, A Gundam for Us project. First up, we have the guy who invented the term, Brian Niemeyer. Hey, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> and then we have the uh, writer of the Star Knight project that is going on right now. Is it on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, Bradford? It's on Indiegogo. Indiegogo. I'll, I'll drop a link down there in the description in case anybody wants to go over and support you. Um, and we have the author of Sword and Flower, Raul Nianzi. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be back. So uh, you guys kind of just came out of the blue uh, at me with this one. I wasn't really expecting it. So uh, I guess you, you have something that you wanted to to get out with this whole uh with regard to the whole Gundam for us thing so uh, i will oh, yeah. oh, i yes. will cede the floor we, to you guys we're sneaking oh yeah oh, oh yeah you see you see this came out of a video we saw on the decline of the mecha genre i forget its exact title but in fact there were two videos yeah one was one was talking about kind of why the mecha genre died off and another one talks about the history of the mecha genre yeah, I'll yeah, I'll um give you links to the videos. Yeah, if you can find them, yeah. I would I would like to watch yeah. them because my whole experience yeah, yeah, with I'll... this uh, with this hashtag um is I, I saw Brian using it and I was talking with you guys about it on Twitter, uh, and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, we do need Americanized mecha that's not you know fucking battle tech and and things like that, um, you know more more Gundam style mech, but for an American audience. Um, and I, I wrote a story that I used the hashtag to kind of promote. Um, I saw it. Yeah. And, but, but since then it's become this whole entire thing and you guys all have your, uh, big projects that you're, that you're working on, including, uh, uh, combat frame X seed for Brian star Knight for Bradford. And I, I you're working on one. Too, I Yes, yes, I am, but I haven't announced it on my blog yet. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll talk. I mean, I will talk about it here, but I'm not ready to make a formal announcement as to the whole thing as yet. Yeah, I will say Raul has discussed some of his ideas with me, and uh, they're pretty exciting. So that should be a treat. Wait, wait, Brian. Wait, Brian. The idea I discussed with you was very different from the idea I discussed with um, with Brad. Yeah. yeah, like I said, you, you've yeah. got a couple ideas. Yeah, 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 I'm, yeah, well yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going, yeah, yeah, but remember, as I said, I will talk about it here. <laughs> maybe we should, uh, maybe we should get, uh, like, our, our terms defined first. So, Brian, um, kind of, you're the one who came up with this Agundum for us tag, so far as I know, right? As far as I know, I, I don't have a copyright on anything, but uh, information <laughs> Right. So what's what's like the basic? Give us like a rundown of the basic idea first before we get into anything else. Okay, well, like all mature artists, I stole the idea and then just kind of warped it to my own purposes. So you may remember a year ago when Nicole and Jason Anspach were popularizing the Star Wars not Star Wars hashtag to promote Galaxy's Edge, mm -hmm. like even before we knew what Galaxy's Edge was, right? Back when it was Galactic Outlaws. And I took inspiration from from Nick because, you know, even then, 
the decline of Star Wars was much higher profile. You know, you'd already had like the um, the the safety pin campaign, the the resistance, all the guys with the Trump derangement syndrome had my Harry Potter and Star Wars. And not only that, you clearly have the quality of the films and the tie-ins declining. Like who can forget um, when Daddy Warpig favored us with an excerpt from Chuck Wendig's Aftermath. <laughs> with like TIE Fighters wibbling and wobbling and zigging and zagging and whatnot. Oh, so, God. yeah, Star Wars was a, a property very much in need of renewal. Um, personally, I think that window is passed. I think it's dead, but that's probably subject for another time. But Nick and Jason have built on the ashes and they've, they've built something special. Um, Galaxy's Edge is on its way to becoming not just a, a fad, but an institution. You know, they're, they're bringing on other authors, at least one of them, a former expanded universe, like official Star Wars author in the Galaxy's Edge. So I saw hmm, this Star Wars, not Star Wars thing really seemed to work. It really seemed to crystallize the, the zeitgeist of disaffected Star Wars fans. Well, who else do I know who's, who's feeling, you know, a bit of the afterglow wearing off, you know, who's kind of feeling their genre descending into like a bit of an, an iron age, if you will, kind of, kind of a dark age. And I've always been into Mecca, right? And you look around the scene and since about the mid nineties, everything has either had to be like an, an of a clone or yet another Gundam the Macross series. And I mean, and now in Gundam, we've got Gundam series that are so meta. They're, they're about kids building model Gundams and going super robot wars with them. Hey, that show is actually good. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it. But like in, in terms of concept, that's, it's quite far removed from the original mash with giant robots that Tomino created in 79, right? It's, Oh yeah. It, oh, that's true. It's just, yeah, it's really, it's really metatextual. It's, it's really postmodern. So in keeping with the, the pulper of ethos, I thought, you know what we need? We really need to turn back from this kind of dead end that Mecca has evolved to and find the root. And we need to infuse it with, with some more characters, some more romance, some more swashbuckling, some more action. And frankly, uh, something that's never really been in there, we, we need to apply superior Western storytelling structures to it. Um, I've recently been rewatching Zeta Gundam, which, I mean, don't get me wrong, I consider holy, it's my, it's my favorite mech series, but I noticed something which is when whenever like one of Camille's harem of girls are inexplicably attracted to him, corner him like in the lounge and, and start nagging at him. I thought, you know, I really just want to skip this. I've seen it before, so, so I will. And what I found was you can skip all the relationship stuff and you lose nothing from the show. That's, just, that's it, kind of sad. Well, and you know what? You can do it with anything. You, you can do it with any show nowadays. Uh, you know, Deadwood, The Wire. Uh, the Sopranos, um, I, I know it's over, but if, if you're watching back through that, anytime Tony's wife or kids are on screen, you can skip the whole scene and you lose nothing from the plot. If you do that to Macross Delta, you skip over half the series. Well, so be it. But uh, 
<laughs> no, I mean, it's up to your taste, but the point is um, one thing that myself and I know we're all been talking about is the, uh, the four act Asian story structure. I mean, I took Japanese, but I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Kisho Tenketsu. Thanks. Yeah, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. It's often called storytelling without conflict, um, which is kind of misleading because it can have conflict, but unlike in Western three act structure, conflict isn't the engine of a story. It's more about setting up character, um, throwing a complication in there, or throwing in an event, and then examining the consequences of the event with an eye toward reconciling it to the status quo. And I noticed that in Gundam series, the relationship stuff often comes in that fourth step. And interestingly enough, I found that if you cut it out, that almost gets you to a Western three-act structure, right? Where you've got character and then a complication, which in Gundam, because it's a war drama, tends to be conflict and then a resolution. But then you just skip over the part after the resolution where people just stand around talking about it. Okay. You also have to remember that those shows were not meant to be binged one after the other. They were done as weekly. They were done kind of weekly or maybe even daily. So so that sort of thing where they're talking about it, I think partially it's intended to help viewers who may have missed a few episodes get up to speed. That's a good explanation. Now, with us, we're in the indie publishing game. And the name of the game now is binge reading. You want to find those binge readers, people who go oh, yes. through a novel a weekend or even a day. Yeah. So you, you do want to get it out fast. So I agree. Yeah, you, you agree. The point of a Gundam for us, as I see it, is to kind of reclaim this venerable mech genre. And actually, I've, I've talked to some Stompy Mech fans, you know, some Battletech fans, and they're perfectly welcome. I mean, I consider Zaku's to be Stompy Max, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> the name Zaku is the Japanese onomatopoeia for stomping. So <laughs> we can cross-pollinate there. But it's about, yeah, taking, you know, testing everything, retaining what is good, kind of scraping off the accretions that are just there from me toism or cultural inertia, and then supercharging it with the more conflict-oriented, faster-paced Western style. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Bradford, did you want to get in on that? Well, you know, Brian's pretty much got the, you know, he's got the, the right of it there. It's, you know, the thing that's going to be apparent is, you know, as this goes on is that all three of us have very different you know, ways, very different things we're doing using the same basic approach. You know, Brian's, you know, Exceed is far more reminiscent of Gundam proper. I'm doing something far more, uh, you know, far closer to, say, the Star Wars, not Star Wars, but with a lot of mecha in it. And Raleigh's doing something completely different. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to talk about that in this chat once the other two are done talking. <laughs> yeah, consider this the place where I'm going to formally announce it first. You heard it here first on Jim Fierce Podcast. It's not often I get an exclusive scoop. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so the mecha genre has been in decline, just to kind of sum up. The mecha genre has been in a decline, kind of like Star Wars, in that it's become too meta, too self-aware. 
Um, and the point of a Gundam for us is to kind of strip all of that back to the base, uh, which is the original Gundam series and things like uh, Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. Um, yeah, m- more or less, that's the idea. Okay. You see, here's the thing. It's, be- it's best to think of Evangelion in particular as the Watchmen of mecha anime. Mm. <laughs> you ain't wrong, kids. He's right. <laughs> okay. So uh, who, who, wants to, who wants to slam Evangelion first? Well, I, I suppose I'll go first because I, I love it. And so it's just kind of like putting the pillow gently over, over the face of a, a loved one who's, you know, it, it's just time to go, right? And I'm singing a lullaby, uh, disconnecting the hard monitors so you know, the, the nursing staff won't interrupt you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I loved Eva back in, uh, back in college. Um, I really hadn't been exposed to much mecha before that. I suppose Gundam Wing was really it. And when I saw original Mobile Suit Gundam and then Zeta, it was really an epiphany for me. I realized, oh, not necessarily this, this is what this is supposed to be, but th- this is what it was. You know, here, it, it, would, it would be like with Watchmen going back and reading like the original Blue Beetle or Question, right? Those gold key characters. And, you know, now that I've been kind of red-pilled on Eva, I, I can't unsee the tropes that they're deconstructing. So yeah, it Evangelion just is a deconstruction of Japanese mecha genres, like by way of Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end. Oh Jesus. Well that's what it originally was. That's what inspired uh the, the creative Evangelion was uh Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Really? Yeah, that's like that's... where the whole instrumentality project comes from. And... Um, Rawl had a phone call, so I guess he uh, muted his mic for a sec. Um, no, don't that, worry about that. That Hang really on. kind of uh, cements my decision, because I, I never watched Evangelion. It was one of those things that when it was coming out, when it was on like Toonami or Adult Swim or whatever, it just, I'm back. It just kind of totally passed me by. Um, and then as the years went on, I kept hearing people talk about it and I kept seeing stuff from it and I found out about the ending, which isn't an ending and about how most of the symbolism and stuff like that. And it is basically fake deep. Um, they're, they're just putting on an appearance of being deep to appear deep. They're not actually saying anything kind of like, you know, what happened with Watchmen, um, and finding out that it's basically based on, childhood's end which i read um i i just i don't think i'm gonna go and watch evangelion after this that's <laughs> oh that, well mm. the damage yeah. that evangelion did to to mac you know in general and to the super robot subset in particular cannot be underestimated it took uh, 10 years roughly for for that damage to be recovered and it took rough and it took two series in particular you know, to do to undo most of the harm one is Gao Gai Gar and the other is Gurren Lagan. yeah and it's important to remember that the original series like Gundam and Macross were more directed toward kids like they'd be on in the morning before school or an afternoon after school 
Evangelion was on at prime time. It was marketed at adults. So in some ways it's considered, uh, here's a good, uh, good analogy. Original Gundam is called the Star Trek of Japan. Okay, it kind of fills that cultural niche. Evangelion is often called the Twin Peaks of Japan. I've heard that. Yeah, so that was more of the demographic it was marketed toward. And yet, then for some reason, all these mecha studios latched onto a property that was really postmodern and deconstructive and aimed at adults. So basically what they were doing was they were taking these people who had been kids when Gundam and Macross were on and then saying, hey, remember this from your childhood? We are just going to, you know, we're, we're going to tear it apart. We're going to dissect it and take a look at what's in there. And then I, I don't know why, but the heads of the studios and the executives said, hmm, okay, that could be, you know, a, a ripe field for exploitation. Let's put that back into kids' anime. So it's really subversive when you think about it. Yeah, it was subversive and nihilistic. And the, the damage it did is, you know, just cannot be understated. The, you know, a lot of the shows that were made in its wake, um, some of them actually execute the idea better. But you know, you still have the core the core conceit that everything just ends in nothingness and there's no point to it all. And for a Japan that that still is you know not truly recovered from its height of the '80s, that was a big, big, big blow to to national morale. Hmm. That's that's an interesting way to put that um, you also have to consider this as well i pointed it out on my blog a while back but another reason i think the mecha genre declined is because it's simply because japan's birth rate kept falling so the and the mecha genre was primarily marketed to children therefore because there were fewer children they had to market these shows you know up the age brackets so, so, so gone were the typical G Wiz super robot stuff, you know. Gone was and and most of the optimistic style as well. You may have just heard the circle, buddy. <laughs> you might have just answered what I was wondering about a second ago. Well, well done. Thanks. <laughs> no, thank you. Because yeah, you got to go where the market is, right? And if there just aren't enough kids to sell things to, yeah, yeah. yeah. You gotta That would also explain why a lot of the shows, um, the shows and franchises, have uh, not. You know, a lot of the shows and franchises that fell into the, you know, into the uh, the otaku ghetto. You know, a lot of them took a long time to recover, and some of them still haven't. And uh, in terms of the mecha genre, it also that would explain a lot of the reasoning behind the collapse of original shows and the uh, retrenchment around Gundam and Macross, mostly Gundam. And, you know, oh, to yeah, the point where it, even yeah. the super robot shows have, you know, have all but disappeared outside of uh, an occasional movie like we got with Mazagrizi Infinity not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, that's why, yeah. That's why you're seeing all Gundam all the time because, well, the kids that grew up watching Gundam are now pretty much the only people you can sell to because they're now middle-aged. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, good point. And another factor here we can't overlook is that in in Japan, 
the the television manga and toy manufacturers tend to be really conservative. They they're very risk averse, so mm. they like bandwagon jumping. They they like taking well here's a successful property. Well, let's take that exact formula and just tweak it a little bit. You know, let's file the serial numbers off, add a fresh coat of paint, put that out there. That happens again and again. Um, I was reading an AMA from like back in 2014 with a former vice president of production from Sunsoft. Remember those guys? And he was there in like the, the, their silver age from like 90 to 94. Mm. So like right after they released um, the the Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman tie-in game and just that masterpiece. And he was talking about this this uh, phenomenon because um, they were big into action and adventure games. And there was just, there was this, you know, paint by the numbers formula that every action game had back then. And it was, okay, so you've got your single sprite main character where everybody, every character in these games was basically the same size as Simon Belmont from Castlevania. And you had like your Castlevania game physics and mechanics. And, you know, we just, you know, reskin it, put a different background, do, do some tweaks on it. And um, he's talking about, in particular, the success of Blaster Master here in the States. You guys remember that game? I haven't played it. It sounds familiar, but... It's the one where you're... Um, you have two different play modes. You're, you're this kid who finds this uh, super advanced tank. And so it's just a kid with a tank, like, um, rolling around, shooting up weird monsters, looking for his pet frog. But then there are kind of... Uh, over at three quarters view, like Zelda parts where you can get out of the tank at any time and go into a cave and do some exploration. And um, if you guys haven't checked it out, I'd highly recommend it. But um, it didn't do that well in Japan, but it was a huge hit over here. And the reason this guy said was, was because in Japan, they were really only interested in these like slight variations of known quantities, whereas the American market was ready for a completely different style of gameplay. You know, we wanted something new. And to bring it full circle, I think that I see the same conditions manifesting themselves in terms of mecha stories, right? Like it, um, it might be kind of a jump to say, well, this is what happened in the early 90s in gaming how how does that translate into novels or comics? Well, I think it does. You know, I think Americans have always been a bit more interested in novelty and innovation. So I don't know. I, th I think the field's really ripe for something like a Gundam for us. Because I mean, it was right for Star Wars, not Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it looks like Nick Cole and Jason Hansbach are doing pretty well for themselves. Oh, absolutely. I was uh, I, I was looking at their Galactic Outlaws website where they have uh, packages that you can buy and you get, you know, certain benefits from getting different tiers, kind of like on Kickstarter, but it's just like a permanent membership on the website. Um, mm. And they have this little pop-up that comes up every time somebody buys a, a package. You know, it doesn't really, I don't think it matters what level they buy it's just like oh you know x bought the blah 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 package um and it just like comes up for a couple of seconds and then goes away and i was looking at their website just kind of 
wandering around checking out the features. It's uh, galacticoutlaws.com, I think. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun just to watch that thing. Yeah, it, it was really <laughs> wild just sitting there like, oh, the, okay, this is the next book. This is the, you know shop where they have all of the links to all of the books and everything this is where you can get your pay and every page that i was going to i would see like three or four of those things just pop up every couple of minutes it was ridiculous how successful they're uh they're being with this gundam not gundam or uh star wars not star wars thing uh and i think i think you're right about that brian i think um that americans are a lot more focused on innovation because it's kind of in our it's in our national consciousness i guess if if such a thing exists um, it, it's part of the mythos of our country where we're built on innovation. You know, before the American system of government came around, literally no other country in the history of the world had tried something like this. Uh, and then you have all of the innovations in electronics and harnessing electricity and flight and computers and all of that shit. You know, the telephone, all of that stuff kind of happened in America, even down to stuff like I, I think air conditioning and like the cotton gin. All of that happened in America. So we do have a very big culture of innovation here in the States. Um, and we get fatigued with shit really quickly over here. It's not to say that we have a throwaway culture, but if you keep giving us the same crap over and over and over again, you're going to start seeing diminishing returns faster than you would, say, in Japan, where they have the isekai genre, where they shit out uh, a novel a week you know, if you could even call it a novel. Um, and it's, it's the Please, exact same formula. Me. It's the exact same formula. We'll get a really long title for the book, and we'll have the exact same character be the main character in all of the books. And, you know, there's a harem, and it's just paint by numbers, paint by numbers. And the Japanese people apparently just never get tired of this stuff. They just keep buying them, and you read it, and you throw it away, and then you get the next one, and you read it, and you throw it away, and they just, I guess they just don't get tired of it. But in America, I mean, they gave us, what was the first new, the Disney Star Wars movie that came out? Um, Force Awakens. Force, Force Awakens, that was it. They gave us the Force Awakens, and people were kind of cool on it, a little lukewarm, like, okay, it's Star Wars, but this doesn't really feel like Star Wars. And then they gave us uh, Rogue One, and then they gave us The Last Jedi. And then they gave us Solo. And by the time Solo hit, it's just people are fucking done with this bullshit. So, <laughs> so I think to the point where they've had to break out, you know, break the glass and bring back, bring back the Clone Wars series. Yeah, that which is all kinds of sad. But um, so far as so far as Mecca goes, um. Mecca has always been kind of popular over here in America. And if things are following that same kind of degraded track where they're just digging a rut and they have no interest in getting out of the rut because the rut makes them money, eventually you're going to hit bedrock and there's not going to be anything else you can mine out of this, at least in the States. So, yeah, you can't... Over here, you can't keep selling the same stuff to the same crowd forever. They just They're, they're going to get tired of it. They're, they're going to walk away to the next thing. And I like the comment that, that Bradford just made about um, the Clone Wars series being Disney's break the glass moment. Well, what else is the Final Fantasy VII remake, which is not just one, right? Because I mean, Disney's doing one new Clone Wars series. They're serializing Final Fantasy VII remake into multiple games. That is Square Enix's break glass moment. Oh man, I didn't know that they were doing that. They're serializing seven. Yeah. Ooh. I didn't know that either. 
Yeah, I knew, but uh, oh, there's no. been so little news you know, going on that, I, what was it? There was a job posting that somehow made Twitter, and that blew up. Oh, that is well, so sad. Yeah, I think you're right. That is Square Enix's break the glass moment right there. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and all I was going to say, Jim, in regard to, you know, the uh, the, uh, the the light novels and stuff. How many, how many versions of Journey to the West do we really need? Right? <laughs> but seriously, how many times are we going to retell that story? Like, I get it. It's, it's an East Asian cultural touchstone, but it it would be as if like every eighth game or comic or novel here was about Paul Bunyan or something. I'm like. <laughs> what? <laughs> how, how many times can you tell the Davy Crockett story? You know. Yeah, uh, well, I think the, I think the real comparison here would be something like Shakespeare. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because Shakespeare is a pretty it is a pretty big um, cultural touchstone for the West. Here's the thing, though: Shakespeare wrote, wrote more than one story. So, <laughs> That's true. I, I suppose, like. Um, you know, he, he, wrote for the, he, he wrote for the movies before there were movies. Oh, okay, I, I, I'm totally with Larry Kriyas. If Shakespeare were working today, he'd be working on the script for the Avengers and it would rock. That's true. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're oh, by the way, quick aside, this is totally off topic, but have you guys ever seen the video about um, how at the Globe Theater in London they're performing Shakespeare with the original pronunciation of the time? Hmm. That's, because, worth, that's a video worth seeing because it, it, yeah. you know, it, uh, everything about Shakespeare, the way most of us have, have experienced it, you know, when we were in school, everything about it changes when you hear it the way it was actually said. Things yeah. start making sense. Yeah, like the jokes. the jokes. Yeah, yeah, like, like the, the hour by hour one because I uh, forget what play it's in. Um, I don't know if it's in Richard III or wherever there's a... Uh, a part where they're talking about the king, and you know, nowadays in the transition, like hour by hour, and, it, and no, because everyone in uh, at least within the times talked like a pirate, apparently. Like, they also yeah. had Robert Graffian from uh, Game of Thrones was like, it's supposed to be like or by or, and uh, so the way they pronounced hour is the same way that they uh, they, they pronounced the uh, colloquial title for a, a lady of the night, so it's a jab at um, you know, the, the king's libido. Right. <laughs> All right. Now, getting back to the stompy robots. Went away. We never left. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're talking about the stagnation of the genre. Well, one thing that I'm kind of curious about is where does something like BattleTech fit in? Because BattleTech is kind of a Gundam style. Um, I think it's called real robot genre. And for those of you yes. in the audience who don't know the distinction, because I didn't until a couple of weeks ago, uh, real robot is basically the robots are a are like the Gundams. They're a weapon of war. Uh, they don't solve the problem. They just, they're like another tank that you have. Um, and super robot is where like uh, Gurren Lagann. It's, it, the robot is powered by fighting spirit. It can do all kinds of insane, crazy bullshit that you would never catch a Gundam doing. Um, so the robot is really, really special. Um, and there might be only one of them, or maybe two, something like that. But, uh, 
yeah, there there is a distinction there that I did not know existed for the longest fucking time. Uh, but what I'm wondering is, where does something like Battletech, which is more a westernized Gundam, fit into this kind of thing? Because they really are, like, in Gundam, the robots are, are jumping all over the place. They're flying through space. In Battletech, you, you land the robots on a planet, and then you just blow the shit out of each other. Um, well, in, interesting um, anecdote in relation to that. I'm a good buddy, Sky Hernstrom, author of Boone's Vision. Uh, you guys are familiar with him, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, he is a Battletech aficionado. The other day on Twitter, he showed me that um, he took the uh, the image that um, my concept artist, the, the same guy that does the concept art for uh, Bradford's Star Knight Saga, he took the, uh, the Grinsmark C line art from my blog and colored it gold, and then printed it out onto like a little, you know, like one by two inch piece of cardboard stock, stuck it on the stand and put it into his Battletech game. And he even asked me for the stats on it, which I have. Mm. So, yeah, so right now he's um, he's running a Battletech game with a, a you know, an, an honest to goodness Grinsmark C from Combat Frame X Seed, you know, late you know, throwing down with uh, some Battletech mechs, and it's it's working just fine. So I, Awesome. Yeah, so I definitely think there's there's an overlap. Because um, actually, with Xseed, uh, let me talk about that for a minute. I'm not going to make a full pitch, but just um, pertaining to the, the question you asked. I definitely think there can be an arena for Western stompy mechs and Eastern pointy mechs to, to play play nice together because specifically if you look at the original mobile suit Gundam that's what the mechs were like I mean they really couldn't even fly unassisted until the second season and even then that that wasn't ordinary they still needed to um, basically fly around on jet powered mobile suit boogie boards for um, for sustained flight so, you know, you have the Zaku in the original series, um, which doesn't even really have enough thrust to um, to even hover under its gravity. It can just make assisted jumps, right? So with Xseed, I started there because basically what I'm doing is um, an, an early beta reader described it as, oh, well, this is a negative image of Gundam. Hmm. He's like, you, you kind of took... The, the first star from Mobile Suit Gundam and, and kind of turned it inside out. And I thought, yeah, that's that's fair. So there will be aspects of it that will be familiar to Gundam fans and I even put some nods to Macross in there. But as, as opposed to in the original Gundam where it's the first episode and the Gundam is already in it, even if it doesn't necessarily see action. And you've got basically um, the hybrid real slash super robot, or I suppose you could call the Gundam a real robot that still has super robot DNA. Hmm. Because, yeah, um, yeah what, what Tomino did, because Gundam was really the, the first real robot series, so all, all Tomino had to work on was the super robot stuff that came before, and yeah, he innovated on that, but there are still tropes and traces from super robot and, robot and Gundam, like, so for example, the main character is a kid who's piloting this uh, this death machine, and it was invented by his scientist dad, 
and you know it's gearishly painted it can it can do special stuff that other mecha can't and whereas you know that's there from the beginning in mobile suit gundam with x seed what i do is i start with like the the zaku level the battle tech grunt level like okay well this is the evolution of the technology so combat frames start with these more ground pounding um you know we're gonna we're gonna bolt a minigun onto the load lifter from aliens and throw it into a battle see what happens right <laughs> and then as yeah with this escalation more and more complex and advanced units start getting fielded and the actual title mech, the X-Seed, doesn't show up until near the end. Hmm. So you've, got this, you've got this continuity of development. Okay, so you, you get to see, uh, <clears throat> basically you get to see the technology advance as the story goes on. Um, that's a really right. interesting way to do it because most mech stories that I've seen, unless you're getting into something like, you know, 40K or Battletech, where it's just this huge, you know, spanning millions of years kind of story, um, most of the mecha that I've seen, like, all of the stuff is already kind of there. You know, it's it's kind of reached not necessarily the peak of technological development, but pretty close to it. And then the main character gets that one special mech that's a step beyond everybody else. But everybody else can still gang up on him and take him down. Yeah, and I still do that. And thanks for um, for laying that out clearly. Because for me, that's the core of how Exceed is going to show forth the, the tenets of a Gundam for us. Right? That 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 That's what makes it a Gundam for us. Is... Um, I'm showing showing that technological development. So, yeah, you do get to a point where the the main protagonist does get the the super powerful, most advanced giant robot, and yeah, it is really badass. But he still has to watch it. He still has to conserve his ammo. You know, he still can't take a bla a plasma bolt to the face and just shrug it off, right? You know, he's th there's still some there's some amount of Mill SF influence real world physics involved, right? But I find I found that as a result, you know, making you wait for building up to it, when he finally does get the super mech, there's this amazing moment of catharsis where you're like, oh yeah, finally, you know, we're we're finally really going to see something, and it's it's more of a payoff rather than just you know, like here you go and handing it to the audience right off the bat. The way that you're, um, <clears throat> the way that you're describing this reminds me a lot of uh, Escaflone, actually, because in that, in that show, for the ones that don't know, uh, this kid gets kidnapped basically and goes to a kind of counter Earth. Um, it's on the moon, I think, uh, and you get to see all of these mechs in action before, like you know, the bad guys have their in mechs with the invisibility cloaks and they come in and they're just you know absolutely fucking up the the good guys mechs um and they have the one super mech that can still be harmed it's not invulnerable but you know you you get to see all of this stuff happen with these mechs and the good guys have mechs and they look really cool and they look really powerful they look like samurai armor uh and then the bad guys show up and just lay waste to them and then you get to see the escaflone and he gets into the escaflone and you know actually does some damage to these guys 
So when he's able to come in with this, you know, kind of super powerful mech and defeat these guys who have been built up as, you know, this powerful, it has a lot of impact on the audience. But then, you know, you also get the part where uh, he gets he gets run off, essentially, like they have to retreat and run away um, because he can't take on an entire army by himself. So it's a lot more right. cathartic for the audience to kind of get that build up and establish things first. Yeah, Escaflona was one of the series that I loved back in the day. So I think um, he might have revealed some unconscious influence it had on me there. That's interesting. <laughs> mm. There are worse places yeah, I've to seen part of it. I haven't seen all. I, I haven't seen all of it. I've seen part of it. I think past the halfway point. That's about where I am too. Yeah, I've seen the whole thing, and I recommend finishing because, um, of course, there. Yeah, there's a super cool twist at the end involving the yeah, movie that I'm not going to spoil. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I liked what I saw, so. And Escafone is one of the shows who, uh, scored by the living goddess of music, Yoko Kano, mm. and that <laughs> really does, I'm serious, you know, I do not, you know, you know I do not overestimate, you know, overestimate the influence on the quality of the production that her music had. Oh, yeah, the opening yeah. theme is it's just a treasure, yeah. I mean, you can, yeah, you can say that, that about song. anything that uh, Yoko Kano does. <clears throat> Honestly, if you're going to get... If, if you ever get to the point within her lifetime where this becomes, like, TV show worthy or something, or you get a, a, an option to do a movie, try and get Yoko Kano to do the, the score for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's rather explicit on my end. Oh yeah, well yeah, that, that's something that you've been you've been pretty quiet so far. So let's talk about um, Star Knight. What's the uh, kind of idea with this? Uh, Star Knight is is me trying to resolve my frustrations with a lot of my other favorite properties. I always thought Star Wars would have been better with with Mecca. I always thought uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes would have been better. You know, would have been better with with Lensman, and Lensman. It also really would have been better had... with the potion. <laughs> Yeah, and Lensman should would have been a lot better if it had you know if it had laser swords. Um, so I decided to take a whole take those big things and a bunch of other stuff I liked, threw them in a pot, and uh, came up with a nice big stew. And that's where Star Knight came from. Uh, it you know it explains why I have you know why I have my protagonist as one of a select group of elite people why there are ma massive sweeping you know space battles going on why i have space pirates that are actually a menacing threat and why i have a master villain who you know who is he's not the most evil guy in the setting but he's the most dangerous guy who is actually a mortal being you have to get into immortals to get worse than him okay yeah, that's that's a very very interesting mashup right there. Um, I'm not gonna lie, and honestly, uh, now that I finally got you on the podcast, I really have to give you props for being one of the few people out there, uh, apart from Nicole and Jason Onspock, to have the balls to take laser swords back from Star Wars. Yeah, you have to actually go to Japan to see anybody else even try. You know, the I when I was looking through. Uh, you know, the Kindle store under military sci-fi and space opera, I saw uh, one cover, one cover 
uh, for a book I think is called Star Warrior with uh, uh, a character carrying a laser, you know, wielding a laser sword. That was it. Nobody else even tried. In fact, of all the covers I had seen, East and West, no one had mixed a space battleship, a giant robot, and a guy with a laser sword. So I did that. Are you, are you also adding in uh, space magic into it? Because uh, my, my, brother, my brother has been As telling it, me about, he's read further into Galaxy's Edge than I have, and apparently at one point they do bring in a Force-like concept, um, like the Force in Star Wars. And uh, they don't they don't bullshit around with midi chlorians or try to explain it scientifically. It's just <laughs> it's legitimate fucking space magic. Um, um, not space. You know, it's not space magic as such. Uh, the excerpt I've posted this week, you know, to promote you know to promote the the crowdfunding campaign, make you know, makes uh, the appear you know, it has an Asmavian level of stuff, but it's actually technology, and in fact. Uh, the fact that the bad guys actually have access to the same kind of thing is, you know, turns out to be a surprise. And that's not to say that there isn't supernatural power. There is. And, but it's, you know, being that I'm drawing from, uh, from a wealth of, of influences, it's only the bad guys who practice sorcery in Star Knight. And there are very, very few who do because very few have even a clue that you can and the reason is is that uh, is that where I you know where I'm taking is that in order for someone to call themselves a magician, they have to make a pact with a supernatural being that actually does all the wiggly wiggly stuff, and that's always involving some you know some entity that that is um, uh, it's not a good guy. You don't see good guys practicing magic in Star Knight. It just doesn't happen. You have, at most, um, you know, at most, you have the ability to call up the super robots, and they are not all equal either. Okay, so you have kind of like uh, a Zoids kind of thing going on there, where you know there there are different, I guess, power levels for the different robots, and you know, depending yeah. on which one you have, you know, you're just not going to be able to to take on one of the more um, advanced types, I guess. To a certain extent, but pilot skill also matters to a great deal. Um, the way I'm writing my protagonist is that he is a veteran fighting man. So even in his real robot, and you know, believe it or not, you know, the, the one I put in the excerpt is the real robot, not the super robot. The, you, you, can, you can make up a gap uh, uh, between power with skill to a certain extent, but you have to really be on the ball, and chances are you're going to have one of the higher end real robots to make that happen. Uh, past a certain point with the super robots, you, no real robot can compete with you, and you're starting to, you know, you're starting to measure your, you know, your enemy in terms of how many battleships do they need to field against you. Okay. So one of these super robots could take out <clears throat> like that, uh, that scene near the end of Escaflone. I haven't gotten to the actual episode, but I think uh, Kess or JD or somebody linked me a uh, video on YouTube. Um, there's a scene near the end of Escaflone where the guy basically goes insane. Like I think he, he gets cut or something and his blood gets into the machine 
and uh, yeah. he, he loses his damn mind and just starts slaughtering all of these other mechs that just like these are the, the elite combat mechs that have been sent to track him down and he's just tearing through them like they're tissue paper so the super robots in in Star Knight could do that um, but yeah, you, super, uh, only up to can. an extent right yeah to, to an extent um, I, being that uh, you know being that I like my my little in jokes and references and shout outs as much as anyone else um, certain you know, certain appearances of robots are going to be are going to be my my shout outs my homages to very famous examples um, I won't spoil all of them, but one of them, you know, one set that's going to be too, you know, too obvious to ignore it are the, are my protagonist's actual superiors in his group, in his organization. Uh, there are 12 members of the Star Knights. Nine of them are like my protagonist. They're veteran fighting men. They have access to a real robot and a super robot, and they have a lensman likes, you know, uh, job ethic to put it, you know, to put it simply. There are three others above them. They are known as the Archangels, and they have uh, they have access to the three most powerful super robots in galactic Christendom, um, and that is uh, my way of layering my references. One is to get a robo. Two is to a very basic tenet of Christian theology, and when I uh, when that hit when I actually get to the point in the series where where those three actually do the thing that they are you know, that they have their break under glass, you know, break the glass moment for, you're not going to forget it. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned galactic Christendom. That's a very interesting concept because that's just not done in science fiction nowadays. It never was done in science fiction. No, it, it never well, has. Paul Paul Anderson tried. <laughs> well, 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 yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, in mo in what most people know as science fiction, that has never been done, as far as I know. Yeah, the, the, it, it's easy to get tripped up on the on, on the religious part, but uh, the thing that's actually substantial is that there is no galactic empire. There is, you know, there is no one world state, and therefore, you know, there are just you know, there there aren't any, even any republics. There are just kingdoms, you know, kingdoms and domains, all sharing a all sharing as a common religion as a unifying element, you know. And I was using historical Christendom in Europe as my model for this. So they're fighting their disputes, and that's and the the attempt by the church to mitigate that is what uh, the Court of Stars, you know, my my Galactic Senate analog is supposed to be about. And like the real Senate, it tends to be a hotbed of intrigue. Yeah, that's one thing that really attracted me to this project, Bradford, is that um, I think that our side has been doing a good job of pointing out that the emperor has no clothes in terms of the prevailing entertainment industry, just foisting nihilism and postmodernism on us. But one thing I think we've kind of been lacking is a, well, what, what if we won aspirational kind of vision and I think Galactic Christendom just fits that to a T. It's it would make even you know a, a hardcore Asimov or or Campbell fan really stop and think, huh? Okay, 
we've been trying to solve this problem of how do you tie a galactic empire together? And most sober-headed sages have said, well, it, it can't be done, but they always discount religion right out of the gate. They just think of it as a non-starter. But I think that a common religion really could be the only way you could pull it off, that you could pull off a unified, at least in some sense, society on that scale. Again, because of the historical analog we have. So I just want to give you props for that. And I know somebody somewhere is going to, you know, is going to accuse me of writing Catholic propaganda. And uh, I'm not even Catholic, folks. <laughs> Don't, you know, <laughs> though, though stranger things have happened and, you know, you know, in the course of any writer's lifetime, if John C. Wright could be, you know, could go from atheism to becoming a Christian, I could easily can become Catholic just by doing research. It's usually how it happens. Mm. <laughs> Mm. Well, yeah. there's a, there's no saying to be deep in history is Catholic. So, to be deep in history is to what? Be Catholic. To be Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and a second side note, um, oh God, when when I started up on Galactic Christendom, uh, I I basically wanted to do historical Christendom in space, and. That meant one other thing, and I know I'm gonna get I'm gonna draw fire from our usual suspects for this. And I, you know, and when that happens, I know I will have succeeded. I present the church as an institution, as an institution, as an unabashed force for order, goodness, and you know, and uh, you know, the stability of mankind. Yes. Oh yeah, they hate that. You're. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna draw some fire for that, which I, I I mean like like I say I'm an atheist so I'm kind of coming at this from a different perspective than you guys but I I really like the idea of galactic Christendom in a story not just because nobody has done it before but because it, it's well like you say it's historically verifiable there are entire countries there you know there are, is Europe which has kind of a unifying theology under under the Pope. Um, or did at one time, uh, uh, barring, you know, internecine conflict. Um, and religion, like, that was, my, that was my bag when I was in college. That was what I went to study. Uh, and people who discount religion as a unifying force, I think, are being really silly, especially in the realm of fiction, because you can do anything in fiction. But uh, religion is one of those things that does hold communities together. This is, like, uh, this is a proven fact. You can look like, pretty much anywhere, and you can find that, you know, even in um, communist countries where they preach atheism. The state is their god. The state is their kind of unifying religion to them. Um, they, they imbue it with superhuman, almost supernatural powers, and that's kind of what holds the society together is fear of the state. Um, so I, I think that the people who are going to bag on you for doing the whole galactic Christendom thing and using religion as a good, uh, a force for good and human stability in this, in this universe are just uh, historically and kind of sociologically ignorant, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. Another, another little, little saying from history that backs you up is um, the, the Soviet union was 80% communist and hundred percent Eastern Orthodox. 
I suppose the Russian Orthodox in this case. Well, because look at the way, as soon as Aaron Curtin fell, look at how the Orthodox Church just sprang back up like a dandelion immediately, and uh, that tells you it never left. Yeah. yeah that's even a Putin, very good point. Even Putin was baptized in secret by his mom under the, mm. under the Soviet regime. So, yeah, that I did not know. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Look how much flack he gets. <laughs> the, uh, yep. No doubt about that. Yeah, the Patriarch of Moscow is his personal confessor, so I mean, he's, he's still practicing. Oh boy, that's that has yeah. all kinds of implications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know the 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 you know <clears throat> in keeping with the with the with the tenant of uh, the pulp revolution being about entertainment and good storytelling. No, I don't make an effort to you know to be didactic about this at all. It is simply I present a you know a culture as it is as it operates and. Certain things are simply presumed to be a thing, and you know the characters talk you know, talk about this as if this is part of everyday life for them. So you know things like you know you know praying to certain saints, some, you know uh, doing you know taking your prayers. You know you know I don't mention confession in it in the draft manuscript mainly because I wanted to keep the keep the plot moving, but you uh, when uh, when one of the minor characters says to uh, says to one of his hench you know, one of his henchmen, uh, if you want to help, now is the time. You know, the only thing you can do is pray to Saint you know to Saint uh, Etano and Saint Haya. You know, two made up saints. They're that reference real people. And <laughs> um, hey, it's a thousand years in the future, and, and there was a cataclysm along the way. I'm allowed a little a little use of the telephone effect. Of course, um, you know it's little things like that that I think are, are are very efficient world building, and I try to be very efficient because I I don't believe in doing fat fantasy extruded product that can be used as a weapon when you put it in print. Uh, um, looking at you, <laughs> Martin. Um, <laughs> Someone called the burn ward. Shots fired. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, now that I've gotten pretty confident in my writing ability, I also I'm also pretty good pretty good now in my confidence that I can turn this around on time, uh, which helps when you know when my first drafts are better than anything Scalzi actually publishes. Um, oh, two for two. So keep in score. At the risk of being a bit you know a bit too brash from my britches. Um, I'm pretty confident that when I deliver Reavers of the Void, that not only will all of the backers, you know, be pleased with what they get, but when it goes for sale up at Amazon, I think it will it will do pretty well. And uh, books two and three, which I hope to have following shortly thereafter, depending on uh, what I, what my resources allow, uh, it will allow me to actually uh, realize the. The, the, uh, the next intermediate step in my ambitions, which is to actually be able to pay bills and or uh, buy, you know, you know, hit up the grocery store simply with my earnings. Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you a dispensation on that telephone effect. So you're, you're all good. Oh, yeah. No, the telephone Ooh. effect is, especially if you're oh. projecting forward from modern day Earth into 
you know, hundreds or thousands of years. I, I, I think one of the best examples I ever saw of the telephone effect was in Warhammer 40K. I wish I could remember what book it was, but there was a certain book where uh, uh, some officials on Terra were talking about, uh, like, Earth culture and things like that. Uh, and one of the guys mentioned that they had recovered... Uh, all, they had almost recovered all three of Shakespeare's original plays. And to, oh yeah, to us, that's like, oh my God, so much was lost in between now and then. But they, they don't know about all of that. So, they, oh, that Shakespeare, he was a great playwright in the, the before time, the long, long ago. And he only had these three plays. <laughs> it's kind of like how we get, um, who was it? Was it Socrates or Plato? Uh, I want to say it was Socrates. Um, who, you know, never actually wrote anything down. Everybody else yes. wrote down stuff about him um, and wrote down the stories that he told. So we don't actually know what Socrates said. We just know what people said he said. Yeah, Plato is a student, and we only know what Socrates said because Plato wrote it down and attributed these things to Socrates. So it could have just been completely BSing us. <laughs> we have to take his word for it. Would have put that past Plato, to be honest. Yeah, 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 no. but yeah, yeah, and 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 that's what really kind of pisses me off. He can't make the full. Yeah, Walker cannot make full use of the telephone effect because so much of our popular culture is still under copyright. Yeah, that, no, that's a can of worms. That is a can of worms right there. Copyright law. Damn you, Disney. Exactly. <sighs> Soon. Yeah, but dancing around it can be fun if you take it as a challenge. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I want to see how you do it. It, it oh. will be very interesting. Wait till you, know, wait till you folks uh, read the scene where uh, Gabriella Robbins starts her command performance, and uh, she's, she's trying to hit on the hero. Um, <laughs> she's trying to hit on the hero, and, and she, her command performance is basically uh, her... Two of her female, you know, colleagues and her male colleague, all of which are references to uh, Yoko Kano's actual uh, long-standing partners, and uh, she she comes out and says, "This is a song of old Earth about a great princess of Mars," and that's <laughs> and that's where I leave it. it, it you know, I don't make up lyrics or anything like that, um, but just that little thing. You know, little things like that, you know, to, to keep the reader amused just before I drop the hammer. And you know, that's how I like to present, to present, uh, you know, the telephone effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally down with that, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. And in the next scene, um, I, I've got a scene where one of the main characters who is a, a fighter pilot is uh, subtly humming to himself a rock song written for a pre-collapse movie by a long dead Ferrari mechanic. And if um, any of you guys can name that song, you, you get a cookie. To... <laughs> oh, this sounds familiar. Oh, God. I don't know. I'll let you think about it. Oh, that sounds so familiar. This is going to bug me. <laughs> Shouldn't uh, take that much research to, to look up. I, I will look into that since you don't want to drop any spoilers here. But... Cool. Well, no, it's it looks like the reference had exactly the effect I hoped. Like that's what I want the reader to be like. Oh, that sounds really familiar, but it's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't quite place it. Yeah, that's 
that's the the perfect level of of, of tantalizing tele telephony. So I'm going to leave it right there. But uh, yeah, good job, Bradford. That's that's clever. All right. So Roll, do you want to get into yours? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure the other two had their chance to talk because you know sometimes I worry that I talk too much. Anyhow, you got carte blanche, man. What you say? So you got you got uh, you got carte blanche. You, you're green. You're going. All right. Up. All right. <laughs> yeah. You see, mine is not. All right. Here's the interesting thing about mine. Mine didn't originally start off as a meta series. Hmm. Yeah. The, the original plan, you see, was to basically rewrite Sword and Flower. Okay. Yeah, and... Yeah, I remember and, you talking and, about that on your blog, like, God, was it a year ago, something like that? Yeah. Well, not... Well, I, well, I didn't... Well... I don't think I talked about specifically doing that on my blog, but you know, I I you know, I did say I wanted to do a fantasy series and that I won't be able to do the mecha thing because my previous mecha idea, which I had told Brian in extensive detail, I just you know, I just couldn't figure anything out for it. So then I started writing this fantasy story that's not that was not initially going to have mecha in it. Now, now okay, there's a point here. But then, yeah, but then I'll be honest, I was influenced by these other two here. And I was thinking, you know what? My setting can fit super robots into it with, you know, without really disrupting the plot. And then, and then it was decided there will be super robots. I mean, if you can but, fit them in there, then, you know, what's the excuse not to? Exactly. There will be super robots. And yeah, and the second thing was I had gotten stuck on plotting, so then I thought of this completely nutso idea. And then it turned out to be the idea I ultimately ended up running with. So instead Here's of having instead of having somebody walk in the door with a gun, you have a giant robot bust through the wall. <laughs> More or less metaphorically, yes. But let me yeah, but let me but let me explain. The, but let me explain kind of the basic thing I'm going for here. All right, do do y'all remember Gundam Wing? Oh yeah, dude, I got that on yeah. DVD. Ah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Do you all remember a character named Lucrezia Noy? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Keep that character in mind. All right. Okay. What? All right then. All right then. What would yeah? All right. Then. Imagine a story where Lucrezia Noine become yeah becomes a cheerleader in order to get close to a football team. Who yeah that to another football team, not the one she's cheerleading for. That has, yeah that is hiding a demon lord. I'm I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> you hooked me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you make that conclusion walking down the street or going to the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, and also, and also, Lady M gets wrapped up into it too. 
<laughs> yeah, just imagine that character in that situation. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm hearing kitchen sink book, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, again, it was a totally nutso idea, but it turned out to be just the one, because I because I was able to plot out the entire the entire storyline. Now, well, honestly, yeah, like before, that, before you go on, like, that's that's one of the things that I really like about the pulp rev, Brian. You brought up the kitchen sink book idea. Um, if you look at a lot of the old pulp stories, they really did that shit a lot. It, it, they just threw everything into this huge stew and pulled an awesome fucking story out of it and you see kind of the same thing with a lot of the pulp rev guys you know like uh with the just like the pulp rev sampler um there's a lot of stories in there that are very kitchen sink like jd cohen's comes to mind with the uh the superhero he's got like gangsters and a kidnapping and superheroes and they're a fact in this universe it's not something that's you know, really weird and out there. They don't just show up out of the blue and everybody's like, oh, what the fuck is this? You know, and he's got a guy who fights with swords instead of using guns and mm. stuff like calls himself oh. a crusader. It's, you know, the, like the kitchen sink approach is really underrated nowadays in SFF, I think. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyhow, you know, now you see by using Lucrezia Noin as the basis of the character, obviously I had to make her a mecha pilot. So now we arrive at the basic setup of the story, not really spoiling anything. You learn all this like in the beginning chapters. All right. All right then. All right then. The Noin character, not literally her, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her and the Lady Un character are, you know, are in their mecha with a bunch of other soldiers, you know, also piloting their mecha trying to storm a demon-possessed space colony. They initially do well at first, but then those two get shot down, as in they get killed in battle. Hmm. Kill it, killing yeah, off your main the... character halfway through the book is a strong move. <laughs> Not ha No, 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 this isn't halfway through the book. This happens literally in the first chapter. Oh, even stronger. Power move. I like it. Yeah. Now you see that. Now you see this is the setup. Because yeah, here's what because of what happens when people die violent deaths, they go to a place called the Lesser Heaven. In the Lesser Heaven, you know, it's like you kind of get a second chance to live out the rest of your life. But yeah, however, yeah, however, there is, yeah, in the lesser heaven, there are certain laws regarding technology. Now, these laws I shamelessly lifted from Gore, from the Gore series, but, you know, I thought they were a good idea. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Okay. Just file the serial numbers off. You'll be fine. Yeah. It's basically no armor, no guns, and no motorized transport. Though trains are fine. Yes, the train is fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I'm, I'm kind of... I, I, I like that idea. I'm just kind of wondering how you're going to get mech out of it. Yeah, I'm getting to that. Yeah, yeah. first of all, the, yeah, of course the main character was a mech pilot. But here's the thing. But here's the thing. As she is... Okay, as she's living out her life peacefully, 
you know, she got a little roommate. She got, you know, she found she found a normal nonviolent job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. As she starts living out her life. All right. You know. Uh, all right then. You know, at one point she encounters an she encounters an athlete, who then yeah who then looks at her, and gives her the same kind of queasy feeling that she had when she was assaulting the colony, because. She had, because she, you know, she basically got shot down because the colony just emitted this psychic wave that made her, that made her kind of freeze up, that made her just want to give up, and she got the same feeling from this athlete that she encountered on the way home from work at one time. Then, she is attacked by a tiger, that jumps, that literally jumps out of her TV. <laughs> yeah. All right. At this point, you know, at this point, you know, she tells her roommate and then she learns that, you know, that, you know, the enemy you thought, okay, the enemy you, uh, the enemy you are fighting on earth is now here. And this, and then, and this leads to her, and this leads to her seeing the, okay, being shown the Mecca. All right. Okay. But the, but here's the thing. The long and short of it is she has to kind of she has to prove herself worthy of the Mecca. That's in order honestly, to do that. That's honestly an interesting concept that I don't see a lot in in mech stories is that you have to you have to prove yourself worthy of driving the mech. Um, I mean, there might be a couple of super robot stories out there that have that kind of concept, but I'm not familiar. Brian, uh, Brad, do you guys or, or have you ever heard of that before? Where you have to prove yourself worthy of piloting it? Yeah. So kind of a... Like, I assume, kind of that, I assume you mean... Thing. Yeah, I assume you mean spiritually, not, like, as oh, a skilled yeah. pilot. Oh, yeah, I remember. She already knows how to fly Max. It's just that she has to prove herself worthy as a person, you know, that she deserves to have this giant weapon of death. Okay. Would Big O yeah. fall into that? I'm... I sort of vaguely. Yeah, Big O would fall into that because uh, Big O is one of the super robot shows where the where the mechs, you know, the super robots are uh, at least partially sentient, and that tends to show up in in super robot shows where you are partially sentient, uh, rather the robots are. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now. Yeah. Now, in order to do this, then. She had, like, she had to, yeah, in order to, but in order to do this, in order to prove herself worthy, she had to actually make a, she actually had to make a wager with the Valkyrie that designed it. That, and, yeah, and that wager is to join, is to join that cheerleading squad I told you about. Now, mind you, there's, now, mind you, now, mind you, it's not it's not like a normal cheerleading squad. I mean, you see, I, I would assume this is like the afterlife cheerleading squad. I would assume it's not normal. <laughs> oh yeah, it's not normal. It's not normal at all. Because here's the thing. Get this. She has to sign a contract, basically, that says that she must service the team. Okay then. Uh, podcast's over. It's been fun, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking, by the way. <laughs> That's an interesting concept.
Yeah, you see, the point, see, what I'm trying to do with this here is I'm trying to contrast her, her prior life as, you know, a soldier, you know, as someone, as someone willing to face bullets, right? Versus someone making them, themselves vulnerable in a different way in order to accomplish, in order to accomplish more or less the same mission, mind you. Because, because she has to do this. She has to get involved in this in order to, in order to ferret out the villain. Oh, okay. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. She, that's a, that's yeah. An and interesting concept. Um, yeah. Somebody has yeah. to, like, I, I've, I've seen that plot a lot, but it's, it's like, there, there's a reason that I talk shit about people who bag on like tropes and, um, you know, uh, cliches and things like that it's like well they they wouldn't be cliches and tropes if they didn't resonate with people right yeah and yeah and in and in and by making herself very vulnerable in this way you know she's you know she's basically trying to prove herself worthy of the you know of the mech but and also yeah but then here's another thing as well there is yeah however there is a corollary there's a catch if she ever thinks of abandoning the mission, if she thinks of running away, if she thinks of choosing cowardice, she loses her eyesight. Whoa. Hmm. <laughs> That's a magic system. Yeah. That, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, you know, you know, it was a wager. You know, it's like, you know, you, you know, you're gambling, you know, you know, I will take your eyesight as, you know, your eyesight will be your collateral. If you, you know, if you run away, I take your eyesight. There's some layers of symbolism there, folks. Yeah, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah, so, that's good symbolism, too. Yep. That's the kind of shit yeah, that, you, that you have to think about. It's like, I, I see so many stories nowadays where people are trying to do symbolism and they just, they just fail at it. Uh, because they're beating, they're beating you over the head with it. It's it's just so obvious what they're trying to say. Like you know, uh, Marvel Comics is kind of a uh, uh, a, mm. a big offender in that regard nowadays yeah. because nobody nobody at that fucking company understands subtlety anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And um, I was watching an interview with Dean Koontz a few years back, and um, had this lovely exposition on symbolism where he said, you know, stained glass window didn't have subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Cool. That's a good yeah. saying. Yeah, so what, and that's that's what a good symbol is, where you you just present it, you show it to the reader, and then you just, you let it go, and you let the context fill it in. But once you've explained the symbol, it's really not a symbol anymore, it's just a sign like a stop sign or something, right? Yeah. And yeah, that's that's Marvel's that is Marvel's problem. They've adopted the Garth Marenghi. You know, he was also use subtext and they're all cowards. I mean, that was uh like I've been reading Mister A by Steve Ditko recently, um, right. and one of the one of the problems that I'm noticing with that one uh, is that this is not meant to entertain people. Um, this was Ditko preaching ob randian objectivism as, as if there's any other kind but you know this this was a comic built around him demonstrating objectivist ethics not 
him telling a story about a superhero or or a hero. I don't I don't think Mr. A has superpowers, but uh, a hero with a black and white moral code, like how Walter B. Gibson did with the Shadow. Um, there's explicit passages in this where if you're familiar with Rand's philosophy on almost any level, then you can almost pull the quote out of the essay that Ayn Rand wrote and you know put it into Ditko's comic, and it's it's right there. Uh, it, it's very upfront, and it, it's not just upfront in the art, which I don't have a problem with because Ditko is a great artist, but it's it's in the dialogue. It's in the way that Mr. A talks. He talks like he's quoting Ayn Rand, not like a superhero presenting his ethical system. Um, so the book is kind of uh, like a Randian chick tract? Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's an entertaining uh, okay. chick tract, but it, but yeah, it's it's a Randian chick tract, basically. Um, like I said, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just like I, I was kind of I was kind of expecting more of a Shadow Punisher type story, and it, that's not what I got. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and oh yeah, and and also. So actually, start, I, had, and I had some. Okay, I don't want you to give away the whole farm right now. You know, just, I'm not giving away the whole farm. I just want to say one last thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was a yeah, there was actually a lot there that I did not say, for one. But yeah, I was giving you the, like the really really simplified version of it. But one other thing is that you know because of the nature of the series, I don't expect there to be a whole lot. You know, to, you don't don't expect to see like massive armies of robots going toe to toe because it's it's going to go in the super robot direction. Okay. Yeah, it's going to go more in a super robot direction. So, so speaking of that, yeah. that's actually a perfect jumping off point. Um, what are what are kind of like the influences that you're bringing into this story, um, with regard to like oh, yeah. how you're structuring your your robots? And I know we talked about uh, Gundam Wing and, and things like that, but so far as like the actual mechs themselves go. Yeah, as far as the mechs themselves, yes, yes, I draw heavily, heavily from Gundam, especially Gundam Wing. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I draw from you know from you know how the Japanese do it generally. There'll there'll be humanoid mechs. I actually used to like the BattleTech style mechs more, but then I warmed up to the humanoid mechs later on. Yeah. So as far as the mechs themselves, yes, they'll be like they'll be like that, but but you know, but this time they'll be more super powered. Because you know these are because these are essentially super robots. Okay. Although although in the flashbacks there will be real robots, because as I told you, she used to be a mech pilot. Yeah, uh, and that kind of I, I don't know that kind of always bothered me about the super robot stories is like Brian, you were talking earlier about uh, building up the technology. It's just like in in a lot of super robot stories it's just like this one guy in his basement built this giant robot with no funding and you know no technology to base it off of he was just a super genius it's like you know or like in Mega Man the technology for a robot like Mega Man and Proto Man existed in that universe they had them the, it was not you know it just took Dr. Yeah. Light and Dr. Wily working together to to build the robots um yeah, <laughs> and with the super robots, like I could very easily see a super robot type story coming out of a real robot type story by the genius of one individual who who took the technology that already existed and added this extra little this extra little spark into it that turned it into a super robot story. So that's that's a very interesting um, kind of way to structure mm -hmm. things there. Yeah, one well, thing I, and one thing I've found that might might be of help here 
is I think authors tend to approach real world physics and extrapolating from present technology as a limitation. And, and yeah, before anyone gives me grief, well, well this is the pulp rev, you know, where our imaginations <laughs> are unbound by those strictures. Mm -hmm. Well, bear with me because what, what I found in doing physics research for Comet Free Next Seed is that the stuff that's possible with actual physics can be orders of magnitude more interesting and terrifying than anything that a fantasist can think of. Um, all you have to do is read, read some John C. Wright, read um, the Count Escaton sequence where people are throwing planets mm. around and growing AI supercomputers from the cores of planets and stuff. Um, you know, turning transcontinental maglev super train rails into mass drivers. But I'll, I'll give you one example of something that I found. Okay. Are you guys familiar with graphene? I've heard of it. Sounds yeah. familiar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You guys are familiar with diamond, of course, the, the hardest substance known on earth. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's harder than it's scratch resistant, but you can easily smash a diamond with a hammer because they're actually kind of frangible, uh, if not scratchable. But what makes a diamond strong is it's carbon atoms arranged in a lattice. Well, basically with graphene, they took a three-dimensional diamond like, well, what if we could just shave off one layer of that lattice? And so have like this um, repeating honeycomb pattern of 2D carbon atoms. And that's graphene. It is two-dimensional. You know, it's just, it's a sheet of carbon one atom thick. And the okay. stuff is so strong that you need an elephant balanced on a pencil to puncture a hole in a saran wrap thickness sheet of graphene. Huh? That actually exi that, that exists? That's a real thing? That's a real thing. Um, it's it's poised to revolutionize most things because uh, in addition to that, it's also a superconductor. Ah. Oh man. Right. So, but so basically, it's real life gundanium. It's it's better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do have an armor application for it, but here's a weapons application because okay, so there's there's graphene, which is two D, uh, a two D carbon nanostructure. Well, then there is carbine. Follow the Y, which is we're like, oh, okay. So we, we have this sheet of graphene. Well, let's peel off one dimension of that and make a one-dimensional chain of carbon atoms. And they've had this for a while, but it's been really expensive and tough to make. But with um, the uh, easing of graphene production and that coming down in price, you figured, okay, well, just take a, you take a sheet of graphene, wrap it into a tube, fill the interior with, I think, a noble gas, and then... Um, cool it down to as close to absolute zero as possible. And what you can do is just form chains of carbon one molecule thick. And now they, they figured out how to do it uh, basically infinitely. So the cost of producing a carbine chain has gone down from something like um, $2 million to $200,000. Wow. Or like twenty million to two hundred thousand. So, yeah, I mean that, that's still really expensive um, for your average guy in the street. But you know, for for governments and institutions and stuff, that's that's a way better ROI. And 
Yeah, carbine is even stronger than graphene, and it's an even better conductor. So, oh, goodness. So bear with me. <laughs> so what you All do right. is... Sorry, question? No, 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 no. Okay, so what you do is, okay, take your... Uh, your spool of of carbine, okay, and you coil it up into like a spring. So you make a coil out of it, and then um, you take a, a couple of sheets of graphene, fold them up into like the size of a bic lighter, and right there you've got a couple of capacitors that could basically hold the same energy output as an H bomb in each of them. Holy oh my gosh. shit. And yeah, you mount them on rails, right? And you make one the anode, one the cathode. <laughs> I think I see where you're oscillate. going with this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you know, just plunk that uh, that carbine coil right in the middle. Bam, you have a rail gun that can uh, accelerate that carbine coil pretty fast. And since it has negligible mass, it's going to get up to a significant portion of the speed of light when you release that thing. Holy shit. Oh, God. <laughs> And this is possible. Oh, this is this is just to clarify. This is possible right now. This is coming to a defense satellite or even um, navy, like phalanx defense cannon near you soon. Oh my god! <laughs> Screw laser weapons, man. Yeah, <laughs> in the ear. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. that is insane. It is because uh, you know what happens to anything that gets well because there there are two weapons applications of the carbine coil. So one is you just launch that um, that carbine coil between the two poles of your magnet in your railgun, but you make it like a paddle ball where you don't cut the cord at the end, so the actual physical coil doesn't get discharged, but a whole lot of EM energy does. Enough to sever the bonds between the neurons and an enemy pilot's brain. Shit. So bam, neural disruptor. Holy hell. And nothing is going to stop that. That is... Oh my god, that's terrifying. Yeah, I don't know. I don't care how thick your armor is, your brain is going to melt. Mm. On the other hand, you can clip the cord and release the um, significant relativistic speed carbine coil and um what that's going to do is it's going to drill you know like a diamond sized hole uh, hole straight through whatever it hits but then it's going to destabilize all the atoms in the matter around that that bullet hole which will then cause a chain reaction and spread outward and then you'll have a matter oh that's terrifying a matter, a matter what disruptor Oh, okay. Like like the Romulan said in Star Trek, just disintegrates things. Oh, yeah. Like no explosion, yeah. no nothing, just gone. Oh, there's probably going to be an explosion. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But also, but you gone, don't have yeah. to aim at the gas tank to get it to blow up. No, and then okay, let's say that what you're shooting at is a mech powered by a graphene capacitor that stores as much energy as an H bomb. Well, if you hit that, and it's you get an H-bomb? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> because the its storing energy is dependent on it staying folded up. And if so, it unfolds... So, so, so how do you blow up your Grenz marks without decimating the city they're trying to occupy? <laughs> you think the Grenz marks have this? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now the guns want to start on cold fusion reactors, although 
so do the X seeds. Um, okay, so I, they're, I well... they're kind of more like um, the uh, oh shit, uh, Gypsy Danger from Pacific Rim. Which ones? The the Grensmarks and the the X seeds that run on Cold Fusion. Yeah, but they're much smaller. So they're um, yeah. Whereas uh, the the Jaegers from Pacific Rim are like Eva sized. You know, they're, they're like Kaiju sized. Yeah. Um, a combat frame is twice the size of like an Abrams tank if you stood it up on end. So hmm. they're basically 50 feet tall. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they're the size of a Gundam. But uh, no, a, a Grensmark is just based on an extrapolation of like tanks, you know, of, of real world equipment, right? Like like I said, I'm, I've, I've got a super genius in Comet Frame Xseed who goes under the handle of Tesla Browning because one thing that I figured was that kind of the, the Chan, you know, the Anon culture, the web culture is going to continue onward and also as, yeah, as as families intermarrying stuff um there's going to be a shortage of of last names so to distinguish themselves more and more people are going to come up with um you know noms de guerre and uh professional handles and stuff so you know this dude patterned himself after nikola tesla and john moses browning but his main genius was to combine two things that people hadn't combined before so you have these work frames which were bipedal humanoid rudimentary construction equipment used to help build the space colonies and mine asteroids. So again, think Ripley's uh, bipedal forklift from Aliens, okay? All right. Only with an enclosed cockpit. Well, he's like, huh, wonder what happened if I just, you know, bolted a minigun under this thing's arm. So he did, <laughs> and he sold it to a company called Seed Corp, which had primarily been, they're basically the John Deere of space. They made like combine harvesters and tractors for colony agricultural pots. But mm. they were the only ones who would give them the time of day. Like, oh, I've been thinking of expanding into military production out of the coalition is trying to pacify Earth. So they bought, they, they licensed his uh, his combat frame concept. Uh, Director Sansa into the Coalition Security Corps immediately placed an order you know, in, in bulk for these things. And that eventually, after a few iterations, led to the standardized Grensmarks. So they are still basically bipedal tractors with machine guns. So so kind uh. of like, um, oh, God, I don't remember the name of the Matrix movie, but the Matrix movie where the uh, the robots found the, the hideaway where all the people were hiding and they had to get out in the big stompy mech suits with the miniguns on them. So that's kind of like the concept. That would be Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. yeah, that was it. Yeah, um, yeah, but just just a little bigger and with enclosed cockpits. But yeah, you know they were they looked kind of cobbled together and kind of improv, you know, ad hoc. Um, the the Grensmarks are official military hardware, so they got more polish on them. I mean, again, they they've got basically think kind of the the luster and impression you get from looking at an Abrams tank, only if it could walk. Okay. Look at a Zaku from Gundam and you get the idea. Ah, right. uh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, your original design looked almost exactly like a Zaku. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah my cover art is designed, but yeah. And so you, you start with that level, and what Browning realized pretty quick was, okay, these have evolved to a dead end. We really break through to get beyond just bipedal forklift with a gun. 
And that breakthrough happens, it kind of happens by a fluke, but that's when we start getting into directed energy weapons and that really causes one of those shifts that turns the balance of power on its head, much like the introduction of the Maxim machine gun or the original tank in World War II. Because nothing, mm. like an Exceed, nothing can stand up to a plasma bolt. Um, yeah, with, I mean, yeah, you can get a bullet or a missile to deliver some pretty impressive thermal and kinetic energy, but uh, you ain't going to get a million Kelvins. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, yeah, so when, when energy weapons show up, you know, the name of the game becomes not how thick can we get this armor to, okay, the, the best way not to get destroyed by plasma bolt is not to be there. Right, do not need ah. that gun barrel, yeah. Well, then, uh, what ends up happening without spoiling anything is, because uh, I, I already said, the X-Seeds show up as the pinnacle of this technology. So they're not the breakthrough, they're the refinement of the breakthrough. Mm. So the breakthrough happens, uh, there, there's a prototype, they make some mass-produced units off of that that uh, still aren't fully optimized for the new technology, but the X-Seed is actually developed at the behest of the main villain. Oh, and you, you, um, I believe Bradford was talking about how evil his main character. The main villain that I've come up with for Exceed is by far the most purely evil character I've ever written. And if you've read mm. the Soul Cycle, you know that means something. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes right. Lon look like a little Mary Sunshine. Ooh. All right. So, but anyway. The, uh, like this guy's just running around eating live babies and wearing live puppies as slippers and shit like that. Well, you're, you're making a, a couple of presumptions there, but you'll you'll see. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's kind of in the right ballpark. So the original point of the XE isn't just allowing the the biggest, mostest, powerfulest mech to beat up the other mecha. It's more like okay, I've, it is. It's a cog in my catastrophic plan, but it's an important one, but it itself is just a, a component in the long game, right? But to serve that role, it's got to have some unique special capabilities. And yeah, one, one of the things they do is they incorporate this um, refinement of graphene and graphite because, or carbide, because when you're in space, if you have zero gravity, access to very cold and very hot temperatures on demand, it's way easier and cheaper to manufacture this stuff. So mm. the X-Seeds have layers of graphene um, composited with lithium plastic. And lithium plastic is also real. It's a new solid electrolyte. Okay. It's got the electrolytes plants crave. Or Mex Crave, I suppose. <laughs> and they layer this stuff over pretty common titanium and ceramic composite. But what the graphene does is um, any anytime you shoot an X seed, it takes like a, a third of the energy because even superconductors aren't 100% efficient. So like a third of the energy gets lost in the atmosphere or in space on the way to the target. Um, another third ablates. So if it does take a direct hit with like a plasma beam, it's going to boil off one layer of armor from the site where it got hit. 
But then the last third is going to go into that graphene capacitor, which powers the weapons and thrusters. So it takes the energy you hit it with and powers itself. I'm mm. really, really interested to see how you're going to kind of pull all of this together because like the way that you're describing all of this, it really sounds like, you know, like what we have now with atom bombs, kind of the, the mutually assured destruction thing where nobody wants to use one because if you do, everybody's going to bomb your ass and it's just like, you know, nuclear winter. Um, it, it really seems yeah. like this is the kind of stuff that you don't want to use because if people used it against you, you would be fucked. No, exactly. You've, you've kind of jumped ahead, but uh, very, very astute, sir. That is what happens. So the Exceed becomes like the new A-bomb. And in fact, when it first shows up, a, a debate rages even between the good guys as to kind of a one ring, like a council around, around thing, where some are like, okay, we need to take this thing and, and use it. Like, we need, need our own. And others are like, no, we need to destroy this freaking thing because if anyone, you know, if this gets into the hands of an enemy state, a rogue state, or that nasty street gang down the block, which it could, then we're all screwed. So we got to get rid of this. And they become quite insistent on that position, even to the point of uh, you know, possibly a little, little backstabbing of some allies. We'll see what happens. I guess. I mean, it seems it seems like it's going to be one of those uh, that, you know, tell me if I'm ruining the story for anybody, but it seems like it's going to be what's happening right now with the uh, 3D printed guns. Once it once it's out there, the genie's out of the bottle and you have to deal with it. You can't just make it go away. That's a good analogy. But anyway, I'm I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and put the put the cap back on right there because I, I don't want to spoil anything. I'll leave something. Yeah. Yeah. Here's yeah I notice how. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same with me. I yeah, what I told you there, what what I told you there about my plot, I'm drastically simplifying it. There's a lot more that that's going to be in that book. Yeah, I, I think I, although I think Brian, you have turned me around on the whole uh, why stick to the laws of physics thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing stuff you described there, Brian. Yeah, you have you have definitely given me some stuff to chew on there because I've I've always long been of the opinion that like why do all of this research when you could just make up whatever the fuck you wanted? That that blows the absolute hell out of anything that I've come up with. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no, I used to think exactly like you guys did. I was a bit. Um... You know, fertile imagination trumps nuts and bolts any day of the week. But uh, the big men with screwdrivers sometimes have a point. And it was really John C. Wright that taught me this lesson because I read Eschaton Sequence and, like I said, was blown away. And he set out to write that and set himself the challenge that he would invent nothing out of whole cloth, that all of the whiz-bang rockets and lasers, sci-fi stuff in it would be plausible. So everything you read in that series is, is possible according to the laws of physics. That's mm. mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go read this. I I honestly need to read more John C. Wright. <laughs> yeah, yeah I tried to I tried to get into that first book, Count to a Trillion, but it couldn't hold but it really didn't hold my interest to be honest. Yeah, it it's a bit of a slow boil, but once it gets going, it doesn't stop after that. 
sometimes I think it goes a bit too fast after that, but you know, what what a payoff. Mm. I can imagine. Jesus. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Seems to have a very dense writing style. Good way to describe it. So was there uh, was there anything else in particular? Because I'm I'm basically tapped here. The only thing I could think to talk about is just like talking shit about mech uh, stories that have gone before. Um, so is there anything else uh, any of you guys wanted to bring up? Well, I need to mention that, you know, they're going to be making a live action Gundam movie. I had heard a little bit of rumbling about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's not many details right now, but. You know, Sunrise, in collaboration with Legendary Pictures, is going to be doing a movie of Mobile Suit Gundam. No word on what plot they'll use, whether they'll adapt one of the existing series or make something up out of whole cloth. Hmm. Well, perhaps third time's a charm, because this is the third time they've attempted a live-action Gundam project. Third time? The only one I've heard of was G-Savior. There was one before that. I did a post on it uh, in... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they uh, Sunrise contracted with one of the co-writers of Top Gun and oh. legendary, yeah, legendary futurist Sid Mead to handle the. Uh, well, they, they have the Top Gun guy to write the script and direct, and then Sid Mead to do the concept art. And do do yourself a favor, go look up the Sid Mead concept art for 1983's failed Gundam movie. It's badass. Mm. It was, was going to heal. Sid Mead's art is usually badass, regardless of what he does for mm. what he does it for or why. Yeah, and he's the first American to handle the main concept art on an official Gundam series he designed, Turn A. Yeah, I know that. He also did uh, Yamato twenty five twenty. Didn't know that. Nice. Yeah, there. That's where uh, he coined the terms ninja rocket ship and techniform box to describe the two basic paradigms of anime starships. Nice. Uh. <laughs> but as well, hopefully, if, I mean, if this time they're going back and resurrect, it could have promise. I mean, a lot of that looked good. I mean, if Guillermo uh. del Toro can do it, you know, I don't see why they couldn't. It really, it really does depend on uh, who specifically Legendary puts on this, and uh, whether or not Sunrise, you know, Sunrise, uh, um, puts some re puts the right people on on the project on their end and has veto, because uh, otherwise, Legendary is going to do something that is going to be contrary to the you know to the spirit of the brand. Count on it. Oh, uh, however, yeah, I I looked up I looked that part up. And according to the articles I've seen, Sunrise is going to maintain being quite a bit of control over how things are plotted out. They're going to try to make sure that they tell a story that's true to the Gundam ethos. They specifically said that it's not going to be about heroic soldiers fighting heroic battles. Hmm. Right, so back to that, Space Mash, okay. Yeah, so I, yeah, I mean, if you've seen any, if you've seen any Gundam series at all, I mean, except for G Gundam, of course. You know, you don't, as you know, you don't really have that. Yeah. So that makes so that makes sense. I mean, there are far worse directions that they could take it than Space Mash. Mash was an amazing show. So. Oh yeah. Um, I recommend Tom Simons, the the dude who 
coined the term subversive, his series on MASH, where he goes through and he'll pick an episode and he'll explain what made that episode great. So yeah, mm. MASH was largely great and it was great on purpose. <laughs> That's the best kind of great. No. Which is uh, why I honestly have a lot of faith in all of the projects that you guys are, are putting forward. Um, because it sounds like y'all are trying right. to be great on purpose and it sounds like you're going to succeed. Trying to entertain readers, man. That's that's the name of the game. Yeah. So thanks for the vote of confidence. If, yeah, you thank know, you. If it, keeps us interested, if it keeps us interested, if we're having fun, you're going to have fun. I'll, I'll guarantee it. Because uh, I, I haven't read a bad story by any one of you three gentlemen. So I'm, I'm very much looking <laughs> forward to these. Thank you. So was there uh, something else that any anybody wanted to bring up, or you want to go ahead and call it here? I'll call it here. I'm tapped out. Bradford, yeah, just a you know, just a one thing I do want to you know I do want to bring up uh, since this is going to be tangentially related. All three of us are going to be producing novels that are going to be ripe for adaptation into other media. So you know, in, in particular, comics and. Uh, well, you know, comics, and if that succeeds, animated, you know, animated material, you know, film and TV. Uh, for any of you folks out there listening to this who have, you know, you know, who are willing to go to bat for us uh, with the with a, with comics, YouTube, and so forth, uh, feel free, you know, feel free to put in a good word on our behalf. I, in particular, right now, I'm open to uh, appearing on. Appearing to promote well, Star Knight and uh, pro and line up future comic book adaptations would, well, would be very cool. Yeah, that's how yeah. we need to be thinking. We're gonna take exactly. You got to You got to play the long game because this is something else that I've noticed. Like I, I talked with JD about this. That uh, podcast should be going up tomorrow. Um, or later tonight. Uh, but, uh, you know, we talked about his superhero stories, and I had mentioned that superheroes really kind of lend themselves to more of a visual medium. And it seems like the same oh, thing sure. applies with with uh, mech stories, is that it's it's primarily a visual thing, because you kind of need to see... Yeah, you, want it, yeah, you, want, yeah, you need to see the robot. Yeah, you need, you need to see the robot. Um, so I, I don't know how well mech stories will lend themselves to text. I, th I think it can be done, you know, and if anybody could do it, it's you three. But uh, <laughs> it, it would be really, really cool to have this, you know, the novels come out and be like the proof of concept. And if people like that, then build off into other medium. Um, that that would just be absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, well, of course. In, in terms of the business end, the signs are good. Because first of all, there are official Gundam novels. Now, I don't know how well they sell in the States, but uh, overseas they do really well. And then right now, if you look at the Amazon type, top 100 of um, like the Millicef and Space Marine and Space Opera genres, there are a lot of books with Mecca there, but they're, they're all Western style. That's the one different part of the recipe that XSEED in particular is bringing to the mix. But again, it does look like a fertile field for expansion. I think once again, uh, American audiences are they're, they're ready. They're ready for something new. Yeah, I have to concur. Uh, a lot of the mech, 
as I see on the covers, tend to take the uh, the big stompy Battletech style as their cue, and all three of us are going in different direction there. So I think, uh, especially as we you know as we uh, unveil our covers for our relevant books and we start spreading those around, the excitement's going to start building, and by the time we launch our books. Uh, I think a, a lot of uh, the t- a lot of that target audience are going to be ready and waiting to throw money at us. Yeah, uh, and, and also another thing after, uh, you know that I believe that Brian pointed out, uh, like on um, you know on a Twitter chat, was that nobody will mistake our books for each other. No. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I've seen you know you know Raleigh and I have seen Brian's cover. Um, my cover candidates for, for Reavers of the Void should be here, uh, next weekend. If, uh, and, uh, I'll be doing, I will be posting both and doing an AB test, you know, hmm. to see which one, you know, resonates better. And, uh, let's see. And I'm looking forward to seeing what, what, uh, what Raleigh's got coming. Yeah. Yeah. Because I haven't posted anything like this on my blog as yet. I want to make sure that you know I have that you know I have a bit more out before I start announcing things. Fair enough. I, I just want to get back to something Jim said because I don't want to totally discount the value of the visuals. And if you notice, both Bradford and I so far have been releasing concept art for our mecha. And, oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, uh, credit credit to our artist who uses the same guy, but. Uh, I'm also going to be. Are you, are you comfortable giving us a, a a name? Give him a free plug. No, he does not want us to. He doesn't. All right. Yeah, I can I can uh, confirm that. That's part of the deal. No name. Okay. Okay. So okay. Anon, we'll, we'll just call him Anon in the <laughs> as, as is the style at the time. Uh, okay. But yeah, and I plan to include the the concept art that Anon did in my book along with the stats of my mecha. So oh, be that'll little... be cool. So like an appendix where if you want to game this thing, then all of the stats and everything will be right there for you. Well, not necessarily in game terms. That's a, that's a good point. Although um, I've already been approached by game designers to do an RPG and a board game for Xseed. So oh, when I launch... Man. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah, so when I launch... Uh, yeah, when, when I launch my crowdfunding campaign, I wanted, I wanted to wait until... The Star Knight saga at least met its goal, which uh, congratulations it did. Yes. Yeah. So, so I didn't want to step. Yeah, I didn't want to step on anyone else's toes. But now that it has, uh, probably in a couple weeks here, I'm going to launch uh, a crowdfunding campaign for for Xseed, and I'm seriously considering making either the board game or the RPG or both stretch goals. Yeah, uh, and wouldn't be a bad yeah, idea yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. As for me. Don't expect a crowdfunding campaign from me anytime soon. I can't exactly give a timetable as to when that will be. But, you know, I want to be sure, you know, before I do anything like that, I just want to be sure I have all my ducks in a row. Right. Fair enough. Nothing wrong with playing it safe. Yeah. To answer Jim's question, the stats for the mecha in in Exceed in the the novel are going to be based on... Burks, all all the world's mobile weapons from MAHQ, which I know Bradford is also familiar with. 
Um, why don't you explain to the folks what that is, Bradford? Um, the Berg's format that you know that MAHQ uh, has been using for their various uh, mecha entries, you know, for several years now, is an adaptation of the Jane's format from uh, you know from the Jane's uh, series of of nonfiction books going over real-world military hardware of various kinds. Uh, being that MAHQ focuses on mecha anime and manga, they you know there there's a uh, two you know, there's uh, two general divisions. The first is Brick's uh, Automobile Weapons, which is for you know humanoid robots and and uh, things of that nature, you know things like it. And then there's the Burke's uh, ship format, which is usually used for the spaceships or starships or whatever the series uses. Um, generally, you know, generally that's only used for starships. You, yeah, I have not seen an entry for a space station or or anything like that. Despite the fact that there there are more Gundam entries than anything else on that site, and well, at the very least, they should have had access up there by now because of Zeta got up and double Zeta. But nope. <laughs> so I had to I had to improvise when I put up the lore post for Hell's Heart. Uh, my my uh, book villain Red Eyes has a space fortress built out of a planetoid. Mm. I love it. Yeah, so that's yeah. a format that I'm I'm going to be using, which actually tries to give real world measurements of stuff. So I've got kilograms of thrust and g's of acceleration and stuff like that. You know, kilowatts of generator output. Okay, so it's not. It's not stats in the RPG sense or or the war game sense. It's like what like what these things would actually do if they existed in the real world. Yeah, specifications. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Very very cool. I I think that um, adding in the uh, RPG war game stats would be a would be a, a sweet <laughs> little touch, but. You know, I'm not here to tell you how to run your mech universe. <laughs> well, that's going to be in the actual books for those games. That'll be in the rule book. Very cool. I'll, I'll I, I'm absolutely it. looking forward to that because uh, this this sounds like all of these actually sound ripe for you know RPG stuff. Like it, it, basically what Gary Gygax did with Dungeons and Dragons. You know, he read all of the books on Appendix N and all of those authors and many more, and he he kind of gamified all of that. Like he gave Conan stats. He gave uh, Kujal the Clever stats, you know, Fofford and the Grey Mauser, he, he statted them out. Um, so you could, <laughs> you could play these, play these characters in your, your own little world, um, or characters very much like them at least. So, uh, uh all of this stuff seems ripe for especially wargaming because that, that's like where the meat of the mech action is, is in the giant oh, yeah. galaxy spanning wars. So it would be very, very cool to see more <laughs> games and RPGs come out of this. Of course. We'll do our best. Maybe, yeah, maybe I... we'll get to the point where we'll have little models like uh, Games Workshop style. I've had an offer for those too. So. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, wow. You're just Boy, beating wow. it up. Yeah, hey, yeah, you're making us look like chumps. <laughs> I'm not trying to make it look like chumps but no 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 that's fine i mean i i don't begrudge your success i'm just saying you're doing good thanks well it hasn't happened yet but yeah the the fact that on the little i've shown just the tip of the iceberg people are getting so the degree of excitement that just a little i've shown is evoking from people is telling me that i've got something here 
And now it's up to me and hopefully the readers who are going to come forward to fund it to actually uh, make good and, uh, you know, cash the checks our mouths are writing. I, I really don't think you're going to have a problem, especially with, like, uh, you were talking about the excitement, man. I was just thinking about, you know, people who were going to read the book and, and want to, you know, crowdfund and help you fund your art and stuff like that. I, I didn't even think about the whole uh, game aspect of it. But if you've got people who are already just on, like you say, the little that you've shown that are already coming to you like, hey, I, I want to make an RPG out of this. I want to make a war game out of this. I want to make minis out of these things. Um, I would say the excitement is building up to fever pitch levels. <laughs> Yeah, God willing. Yes. And I want to see all of you guys succeed too. The rising tide lifts all boats, and uh, indeed, in Bradford. So I'm I'm more than willing. You know, I've always got one hand reaching up for the next run of the ladder, but I've always got one hand reaching down to help the next guy up to his next rung. So that's why I look at it. And for my part, um, I I've told Raleigh this you know, privately, and I've said it. I said it when I appeared on uh, Ethan Ralph's Kill Screen the other night. Uh, my explicit goal is to you know be ready to pitch for you know to become the first Western author to get into Super Robot Wars, and I want to be ready to make that case in two years. Mm. Bold. What what is Super Robot Wars? Just for the people who aren't familiar. Super uh, Robot Wars is a long-standing video game war franchise uh, that mashes up all sorts of popular uh, mecha anime, Super Robot, Real Robot alike. In fact, that's one of the franchises that really spread those terms around. And it is very much a, a war game, you know, a war game property that mashes up a bunch of stories and, uh, you know, and tries to, you know, tries to basically be a big fan service war game. And it it pretty reliably hits that, you know, hits that sweet spot. The last two games uh, that have been, are, which are the first two to be released into the West through Singapore, um, are Super Robot Wars V and Super Robot Wars X, sometimes referred to as Cross, for the PS4 and PS Vita. And uh, you can find Let's Plays and all that stuff on YouTube, not hard to find. Uh, and I, I have to have Japanese, yeah this has been a Japanese institution for you know for years but I I've noticed especially in the, with these last two games that I think they're gonna start running dry on new material to incorporate because of all the reasons we previously talked about with uh, the decline of the mecha genre and I think they may be in a position in a couple of years where they may be willing to listen. Accept is not exactly what, you know, accept is a different story, but listen to the argument to incorporate foreign originated properties. Hmm. That would be very interesting because like um, going back to the, one of the most famous ones like Battletech and 40K have huge mechs and all kinds of different um, different mechs in them. They've got the human-sized... Uh, I'm blinking on the name. Um, not the Terminators, the one where they put the dead guys into the... Even in death, I still... The Dreadnoughts. Dreadnoughts, thank you. Yeah, they have, like, the Dreadnoughts, and then they also have uh, the Titans and things like that. And then, you know, Battletech is just full of all kinds of different mechs. Um, it would be very interesting to see those come into something where you could have a, uh, a, a Mad Cat fight a Gundam. 
<laughs> yeah. Mm. And if they're willing to do that, you know, to just kind of like shove some life back into the series, then it wouldn't be out of the question, I think, for them to include, you know, something like Star Knight or Exceed or what have you. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's encouraging. Encouraging news. Oh, yeah. That's uh, very, very ambitious plans from everybody, but uh, I I think you can succeed, especially, like I say, if people are already coming to you about this kind of stuff and, you know, you're putting this out there as as a possibility, as something you at least want to be ready for in a given amount of time. Um, Yeah, I don't I don't think it's out of the question. I think this is going to be one of the biggest things to happen in the next couple of years so far as excuse me, so far as science fiction goes. Um, this, it, I, I think this is absolutely going to blow not just the mecha genre, but science fiction uh, a new hole. It's it's going to be the next, um, <laughs> the next Galaxy's Edge. No pressure, but hey, if we can even achieve collectively a significant fraction of Galaxy's Edge's success, that'll that'll be a huge win. That'll be taking back not just market share but mind share from guys like. Marvel and like Tor and like the big five publishers. Yeah. The mind share thing is very important, you know, because the way that the oh, internet yeah. works now, uh, you know, because they had the, the big five publishers or even, you know, record labels and things like that back in the day, you know, you get your song on the radio and then suddenly everybody's listening to your music. Nowadays, you can't have that anymore with the way that the internet works. There's not going to be any huge sweeping like galaxy's edge is really popular, but, you know, in two years or however long they've been running their campaign and, and releasing these books, um, it, it hasn't gotten near to the popularity that Star Wars did back when the first movie came out um, in, what was it, the 70s, the late 70s? Yeah, and that, that brings up a point that uh, has been kind of a bone of contention lately, just in, in our thing which is, you know, how do we start building institutions now that these SJW converged ones are tearing themselves apart? And really, I, I'm not necessarily going to say to curb your expectations, but America's a different place. I mean, culture has changed. And I don't really expect to see another Star Wars-sized sensation for a long time. It's going to be a long wait just because the culture is so divided, but also because media is democratized, that the gatekeepers really are gone. And having a phenomenon like the blockbuster franchise that just stands astride the entertainment world like a Colossus or the biggest band in the world that sells out arenas and next stadiums everywhere they go, it's just that's kind of gone because the solidified underlying culture, if we could all come together and appreciate that, has, has really fractured. But what we can do is take advantage of the tools we've been given. And I think that in the process of each of us pursuing our own economic interest and our own artistic vision, as long as we stay open to joining hands with like-minded fellows, then what you'll see is something like we've seen in Comicsgate, 
right? Where you've got Diversity in Comics and Ethan Van Skyver, who are really the, the two biggest honchos in that. But they're using their platforms to help other dudes like uh, the, the Red Rooster guy and the, the Kill All guy to meet their crowdfunding goals. So again, I, I really think that the approach of, well, let's, you know, kind of form this conglomerate in this combine and concentrate all of the mindshare and power in a small number of hands and then kind of dole it out like a central authority. I really think that's a, a dead model for now. It's really analog thinking. I really think that the whole, a, a bunch of independent talents who've always got one hand reaching up for the next rung and one hand reaching down, help others up is how we're going to get some new institutions. And, and we are, we've already, we've already seen it. We've seen it with Gamergate. We've seen it with the Dragon Awards. We've seen it with Galaxy's Edge. And now we're seeing it with Comics. And hopefully. Yeah, uh, Diversity in Comics is starting up his own, his own uh, publishing company. Spido. Yeah. Good point. And yeah, if a Gundam for us, if, if we can achieve, again, even a small amount of that same kind of action, it's it's going to enrich us materially, but it's it's going to enrich the culture in positive ways and and I think in lasting ways. Yeah, and, and the like, important and the important thing here too is that we're you know, we're not merely just sitting here complaining. We've done too much of that. I know I have. But, you know, we're actually throwing our hat in the ring and making something. Yeah, good point, Ronald. Mea culpa. And, yeah, that's what I would say to, to anyone. Like, I know that uh, Bradford caught some heckling. Like, well, uh, you know, get, get a book finished before you go begging. No, don't, don't listen to those guys. Ask them, you know, show me your books. Show me what you've done. You know, show me the scalps you've taken. Get off the bench, get in the game, and then we can discuss marketing strategy, right? Well, yeah, it's you know, I after the you know the appearance of the kill stream, I I went back and looked at some of the comments and you know left on on the YouTube listing, and it's it's the angle biting BS you know from people who don't pay attention. So I don't you know, I give them no mind. They you know. They're not in the game. They're you know they're not even doing good you know they're not even doing good heckling jobs. You know, all there is a stat where they're not. Like you 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 dumb and your face is dumb. Yeah, the box taught us how to deal with those guys. Uh, and shout out to Ralph, you know, for being a stand-up guy. He yeah, that was yeah. very great of him. He didn't have to do it, um, and. Yeah, he brought me on it. He brought me on. I I sat in the green room for the entire show, you know, for, and uh, just waited and patiently waited for my time to come up. And uh, it felt like being a being a, a a minor league guest on the Tonight Show during Carson's run, you know, when he would occasionally <laughs> have to bump somebody because uh, of uh, his big guest that night was Brittany Venti, and you know, she's reliable for for views, but <laughs> she can also eat up a lot of time. <laughs> Do Ralph at least have some nice magazines in there? I'm not talking like Field and Stream and, and people, you know, guns and ammo. Yeah, the man keeps a well-stocked green room. I, I like the word finding the crossword puzzle myself. That's just me. Mm. But going back to what you were talking about, Brian, um, so far as like fractured culture, when you look at things like um, 
the tabletop hobby or the comic book hobby. Um, it's a lot harder for things like, say, uh, I don't know, Lion and Dragon to become, you know, huge, really like a cultural force like Dungeons and Dragons did um, back in the 70s. And now it's this huge institution. But things like the OSR are kind of taking over the uh, the tabletop hobby. It got very big. Um, and there are a lot of people like uh, Autark and um, RPG Pundit and, you know, various other people. Uh, I think Grim Jim Desborough puts out his own games, too. Uh, they may never become, like, this huge cultural force. Like, Adventure Conqueror King is not going to replace Dungeons & Dragons as what Dungeons & Dragons is today. But so far as the RPG circle goes, everybody knows what Adventure Conqueror King is. Um, so far as comics goes, like the comic book hobby, so far as people are plugged into the internet and not just going to the comic shop and buying their poll list and going home and reading whatever Drek Marvel is putting out this month, um, people that are plugged into what's going on in the comics industry via social media, they know who Diversity in Comics is. He's a force in the industry now. And he's starting up his own imprint and or, or his own publishing company, and he's putting out, you know, Jawbreakers and Iron Sights, and Ethan Van Skyver is doing Cyberfrog, and he's got all of these other ideas that he wants to crowdfund. Um, and people that are in the comic books fandom, I guess, if you want to term it like that, they know who these people are, they know what the projects are, and the financial backing that these people are getting is insane, and it's not coming from you know, your average normie who goes and watches an adventure an, an Avengers movie and then, you know, goes to the comics sh shop and gets disappointed because Riri Williams is Iron Man now. Um, it, yeah. It's coming from the people who have been in this hobby for decades and they want something different. Um, they want something new. So it, it's, mm -hmm. it's harder to become a massive culturally influential juggernaut. But within that circle of people that really cares about this kind of stuff, it is very easy to to become significant and to become I don't know if powerful is the right word but uh, I, I guess important significant is probably the better term um, well it you bring up Richard Meyer and I don't know if it was comic book resources but it's uh, whoever keeps the semi-official record of such things he was named in the top 100 most powerful people in comics recently wow so, yeah, so, I mean, he's rocking to the big boys. He's up there playing at the same level as big gatekeeper institutions like Marvel and DC. So, yeah, don't say it can't happen, but it's it's happening in a different way. I mean, again, the top-down model we're used to where there's one or two big players or a, a cabal who decide the barrier to entry into an industry and de determine who gets in and who's got to wait in line, that's really going away. And it's going away because of things like Amazon and the internet in general. Now, comics have a little bit problem, which is they've got a choke point in Diamond. There, there's only one distributor that does have a monopoly. Uh, Contra, people who accuse Amazon of being the same thing. Amazon is not a That's a subject for a different time. But we are really lucky being writers and that's one of the reasons that you are seeing things like galaxy's edge 
and like Starnet Saga and like Xseed on the indie publishing side because there is zero barrier to entry for authors now. Thanks to Amazon, we can get out there and for reasonable production costs, we can get our books in front of an audience. And because of the algorithm, we have a proven formula to make it work. Where if we do everything on our end and we write well and we work with the algorithm long enough, at this point in history, we will succeed in reaching people. Yeah. And to that effect, um, Nick Cole has a has a uh, has a YouTube channel and a video series that uh, just dropped its fourth episode yesterday, and the new the fourth episode does in fact uh, cover publishing success, and talks a little bit about you know working the the algorithm and his specific experiences with it as of late. Anybody who seriously wants to get into that game, get into the game now. He's the man to study, and he's the man to listen to because he's you know he is dropping the knowledge, and that's without <laughs> going to the Galaxy Galactic Outlaws and buying the report. Yeah, I, I totally second that. I've been watching those videos, just eating them up, and Nick Nick is just a king among men. He is an awesome guy. He is just sharing for free information that has been proven to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So listen up. Um, I actually ran into a guy on Twitter who had just released his first book the other day. And I saw that he was promoting it all over social media. And in fact, he asked oh, me if I'd retweet it. And I said, no, stop. You know, I'm not going to retweet that. Not because I don't want your book to succeed, but because I do. If you invite any rando off the street in to click on your book link or, or even worse, buy your book, it is going to confuse the hell out of Amazon's algorithm, it's going to kill your book. So there, there's still a lot of misinformation and there's still a lot of authors who are sadly still wedded to the old publishing model. Mm-hmm. Or, they, or even if they're indie, because I mean, yeah, they're, they're still, more and more people waking up to the fact that you don't need an agent. They're just playing thieves, as was recently proven by Chuck Kalanick. Ask him about that. And, oh, I heard about that. Yeah, what realize. Uh, Raul, you want to you want to take the ball here? Well, okay. Yeah, the yeah the long and short of it is that all this time, Chuck Palahniuk, the author of Fight Club, you know that guy. Well, his agent had apparently been stealing money from him mm-hmm. for years, and when Chuck Palahniuk went into that account to look, the money was gone. And he, of course, found out what happened. And yeah, yeah, that's pretty much all I know about the situation. Yeah, he's he's basically gone from being a millionaire to being wiped out overnight because a bookkeeper at his publisher had been embezzling from their authors for years undetected because the agency didn't do their diligence on the accounts. Wow. And later it turned out this guy isn't even a CPA. He was he just started out as like some intern who had no no training in bookkeeping, but they just made him their bookkeeper. Oh and this man. is not and this is not some fly by night output. This is a respected decades old New York publishing house or uh, agency rather that's worked with um, all the top publishing houses. So his only recourse now, I mean you you do not want to be in Chuck's position 
and more and more authors are figuring this out. You don't want to be a bestseller multiple times over and then be thrust into poverty with your only recourse being a lengthy and expensive civil suit against your agent because you trusted the wrong people. So you have people who are learning to do it yourself, but then they're still taking these old bromides and this old analog advice from the days of Tradpub and trying to port it over to Amazon. And it, it does not work. Those kinds of things like um, shouting that your book has been launched from the rooftops to all in the sundry when you first release it will kill your book. Don't, don't do that. Um, we, we don't go into that here. Go, go seek out the Nicole videos Bradford mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. go ahead and put a link to Nick Cole's YouTube channel down nice. in the description because I'm subscribed to the guy. I've watched all the videos. It's Yes, he is absolutely, like you said, Brian, he is giving away information that is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for free for anybody who cares to pick it up and listen to him. And here's, and here's the thing you also have to realize. In a country of 300 million people, I'm pretty sure there's 1,000 or 2,000 that would be happy to read our books. Right. Good point. And then there's more than that. Amazon is so big. The internet is so big that there is an audience for your books out there. And there's an audience that's big enough for you to make a living. I mean, people are making a living off of Sasquatch. We, we have Dr. Oh, Chuck Tingle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The man himself. It's a man of the hour. Yeah. How do I'd love to see him write a mech book. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I, no, I, for the I, for the comedy value, I would like to see Chuck Tittle write a mech book. That would be pretty funny. Yeah, he he probably did right now during this broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, uh, Chuck, it's if you're only out matter there, of time. Well, that's the thing. He's fast. He's he's got that part of the the Chris Fox and the Cole Jason Spock formula. You know, you you release books on the regular and you release them fast to binge readers and you watch your bank account grow. So luckily, people are figuring that out, and the more that figure it out and take take the plunge into indie, the more chances we're going to have to strike gold, to create the conditions for that black swan event. You know that uh, not anytime soon, but to sow the seeds for that eventual next Star Wars only. This time, instead of warmed over hippie Joseph Campbell kind of wishy-washy Christianity mixed with Buddhism, we'll get like to christen him. <laughs> oh, it is a good time to be alive. Amen. Especially when yeah. we've got guys like Nick Cole out there who's like, no, I figured out how to do it, and I'll tell you. Just... You know, even if he is charging a hundred dollars for like the full after he's not like he's not giving away the whole farm for free on YouTube. Um, I, I know he's keeping some stuff to himself just because he's not an idiot. Um, <laughs> oh, totally. He and he admits that, and large part of it is his writing partner Jason is the big data guy. That's what his training is in. So yeah, Jason spent a lot of time with that. He knows more of the in and ins and outs of the algorithm and more of the inside baseball stuff. So Nick is painting with a pretty broad brush, but it's stuff that 
if you dig your hands into that rich soil and you start working at it, what Nick says is if you work it, if you work that plot of land for three years, there's no reason you can't figure out the details, right? If you're reasonably intelligent, you're you're going to be able to see what works for you and what doesn't, and you're going to be able to optimize your results. Makes sense to me. <laughs> but he shows exactly, he shows you where to dig, right? He, he points out the, the choicest pod lands like that. That is where you want to start planning and just work, work your butt off for three years and you'll have something to show for it. So that's what more authors and creators need to do. Now, again, in, in comics, yeah, you got the Diamond Monopoly. I know, I know that Vox um, has, has been working on a workaround for that. But does anyone know if he's unveiled like exactly what his new distribution plan is? Um, while we've been you know, recording, he had a dark stream. And I'm going to go listen to that after we're done here. See if he's done, if he talks about that. But so far, no. I haven't heard anything concrete, only that it's in the works. Okay. Well, again, we don't want to pull the trigger before that's ready. I'm, I'm sure that's what he's thinking. He wants to make sure he's got his ducks in a row before making a play that big. But otherwise, all the other dudes, like the comic skate guys, they're mainly just selling via mail order through Indiegogo and selling their comics as premium items with limited availability during the crowdfunding campaign only. And I know Ethan Van Skyver has um, made vague mention of getting Cyberfrog and Rainbow Brute into stores down the line. It doesn't sound like he's exactly sure how he's going to do it either. So yeah, he's, he's mentioned on Twitter. I've seen him. He seems very confident about the, uh, the notion that Cyberfrog will be in your local comic book shop soon oh, good. so uh I, I don't know if he's gone into his plan elsewhere um but the guy the guy knows what he's doing he's been in the comic book industry for god only knows how long so um 25 years yeah i'm i'm very confident that if anybody can figure it out it's either going to be vox day because he's not an idiot um very much not an idiot and ethan van skyver you know, because he's already yeah. got all of the... It would be nice if they would work together, but I think that Ethan has some issues with Vox, but, you know, whatever. I don't know. You know, It's not so much issues as it is uh, Vox is, is doing something that that's uh, significantly different from what Ethan's af after that uh, pretty much means that uh, they're not going to be collaborating because they're, they're out to achieve different things. Okay. Right. But one thing both of them do very well, both in their own right and increasingly in, in a, a corporate capacity, is that those two are, have managed to be very quick about merchandising. And uh, merchandising is something I think a lot of indie authors really need to embrace whole hog. Amen. I, yes. I, as soon as I've got high-quality color artwork for, for Star Knight, you damn right I'm opening a T-shirt, sure. You know. Oh, yeah, by the yeah, that's how Dan Salvato makes money off the Doki Doki Literature Club. Uh-huh. Yeah, because the game is free, so. Yeah. That that but actually is a is a good uh a, a good thing to bring up because there's a lot of people out there like this this kind of gets into the idea of uh hobbies as lifestyle, um, which RPG Pundit has been railing against for uh, God only knows how long at this point. 
Yeah, um, and I've I've done it too. So I, you know, but I'm not talking about RPGs as a lifestyle right now, am I? Well, yeah, but I mean, like the idea that you know hobbies as a lifestyle, like that you can buy T-shirts and you know show show your support or show that you're a fan and things like that. And this is honestly something that I really don't have a problem with. Um, like that's where I differ with with pundit. I don't think it should be a, a lifestyle. I don't think you should live your life by, you know, what comics you read or what what tabletop games you play or what video games you play or what music you listen to. But I also have uh, whiskey stones in the shape of d twenties. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, and, and I have a ton of t shirts and and stuff like that with band logos on them and you know various other things. Um, and it, honestly, it's it's a way for the creators to kind of power their machine without resorting to uh, crowdfunding all the time. Um, and it's a way for the fans to get a cool piece of merchandise. You know, I really don't have a problem with merchandising. So if you put out, you know, some really cool artwork on a T-shirt or, or a baseball or like the X-Seed logo on a baseball cap, I'll buy it. <laughs> I'll buy it and I will wear it. So, uh, like, I like yeah, that kind uh, of shit. Good to know. Yeah, and to back up Bradford, I, I am definitely working on offering T-shirts and posters, at least at this stage, along with the the Xseed crowdfunding campaign when I get that off the ground. Still got to find the right supplier. But you two bring up an excellent point that bears addressing. And, yeah, I've noticed a lot of people... A lot of angle biters throwing around accusations of hypocrisy, right? And I really think that's an artifact of, of the left warping language because no one really understands what hypocrisy is anymore. It's almost become like racism or transphobia or Islamophobia or something. It, it, it's a buzzword used to describe someone doing something that offends my sensibilities. But... Again, if you if you take the long view, things like offering merch of your IP or distributing through Amazon, right? I've, I've seen you know, myself and other creators have taken flack from some, some ankle biters for those things. And what I would say to them is, look, we've tried this uh, alternate means of, of support thing, and it, it just keeps getting shut down. So, yeah, well, I'm the first to say, don't give money to people who hate you. Don't don't go all binary spurg about it, okay? Because because the old right left let the left run roughshod. In this day and age, it is effectively impossible unless you want to go full Ted Kaczynski and live out in the woods to avoid contact and interaction with converged institutions entirely, right? We, mm -hmm. we Most don't notably, anything financial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got a story about that, because this is your second try at funding Starnight Saga, right? Yeah. I was a, the, first, the first try was on Freestarter, and uh, Freestarter got deplatformed by its payment processor, Stripe. And... Uh, I was good. I was, you know, I gave it a little, a little time because I knew I read the story about how it happened, and it was a screw job. It was a politically motivated screw job. Totally. Uh, I was not the target. Not even Box Day was the target. It was the man who founded the site. He was the target of the deplatforming attempt. 
and it was successful. Freestarter is still de facto offline, so and, and um, it doesn't look like they're going to they're going to recover. So I pretty much abandoned my account there, set up an Indiegogo at uh, Brian's uh, you know, suggestion, uh, and along with a few others, that's what led to this successful uh, crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, and some people would accuse us of being hypocrites for partnering with Indiegogo, but to that I say there there is no alternative other than what we're supposed to go door to door or ask people to mail in couch cushion change. I mean, if we can work, yeah, if we can work with the other side to then take advantage of their service to fund our projects to eventually defeat them, I call that judo jujitsu. I don't call that hypocrisy. Because if, if you're, as long as you make a good faith effort, or you're you're intentional about what you're doing, it it it's okay, right? Because in I actually studied ethics, and in the moral calculus, you are never obligated to do anything objectively harmful or futile or more burdensome than necessary. Okay. Now you can do that, and that's called heroism. That's when you do you go above and beyond, and you do something that's morally praiseworthy, if not morally obligatory. But it it is no sin to put your book up on Amazon when Amazon is the market, the majority of ebook, audio, and print sales from indies and TradPub happen on Amazon. There are some people who succeed at the fringes, but you're you're playing the lottery there. So if you want to have an impact, you got to go through there. I mean, it would be like saying, okay, well, I'm sure all the internet service providers and you know, we, we know that like Microsoft and Apple are converged. So, so what, we can't use computers at all now? Yeah, <laughs> and if, if taking this that's a good ultimate point. Extreme, thanks, it's it just, you know, it's a reductio ad absurdum. You know, where, where do you draw the line with the charges of hypocrisy? And the, and the fact is, even using the other side's converged infrastructure, we're winning, right? We're winning on Twitter. We helped swing the 2016 election using Jack's BS platform. Mm -hmm. So there's also the possibility of, well, why don't we go in and take back some of these converged institutions? We can't do that if we stay home sitting on our thumbs. Also, yeah, also, yeah, also uh, an encouraging sign is, I'm pretty positive that, you know, that, the that you know that the people who hated diversity in comics were bombarding Indiegogo and begging them to take down his Kickstarter or rather mm. Indiegogo you know his account because of one stupid thing or another, and they yeah. had not and they had not done so. That's why I consider it an encouraging sign. I'm not saying that Indiegogo is this ultra white right wing thing. The fact that he's pulling down. You know, what what is it like four hundred thousand dollars? That's for job breakers. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was six. Yeah, figures. people like money. Yeah, people like money. So that too. Yeah, and and that's another thing that you know kind of needs to be brought up is there's nothing wrong with making a profit, which is what I I like about you know the pulp rev and all of this uh, stuff that we're doing here is the and especially Comicsgate is that these guys are coming out here and they're saying up front, I am doing this to make money. That is one of my primary goals. I also want to revitalize comics, or we also want to revitalize science fiction and fantasy literature. Um, 
we want to make it fun again, but we also want to be able to live off of our book sales or our comic sales or, you know, what mm -hmm. have you insert your, whatever you're doing right here. Um, be, yeah. Being upfront about that, I think is very important because there's no, there, there's this weird idea out there that it's somehow wrong to make money. Um, and, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's great is the two yeah. ideas aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. They go hand in hand because if you look at why Marvel Lucasfilm are failing, it's because, they forgot who they serve and they are no longer market facing. It's the companies that still care about making money that avoid convergence or at least still put out something of worth because they know to do that, they've got to serve their customers' needs. Mm -hmm. And also, also, Diversity in Comics repeatedly points out that in the 80s, comics sold a lot of money. Comic, no, comics sold, sold a lot of copies and made a lot of money. And Part of his efforts is to bring back that era in some way. That's like the two are related. So yeah, that, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, of course, I'm trying to make a living by my writing, but I know that in order to do that, I've got to scratch my customer's itch. So we both win. It is not a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not zero-sum game between, between uh, the author and the audience, and it's not zero-sum game you know, between authors. You know, this is no. not there. There is no finite pie here, folks. You know, you, you know, throw me a fiver, throw Brian a fiver, throw Raleigh a fiver as you can. You know, and uh, all of us will make our good stuff, and we, everybody benefits. All three of us, all of you, everybody else. You know, in due time. You know, as uh, the our influence proliferates and inspires others to do, you know, to do as we have done. Exactly. Yeah, to quote Nicole. Yeah, nobody buys just one book. Go ahead. Exactly. There's nothing that's stopping me, for instance, you know, um, let's say I'm a factory worker and I really like to read science fiction. There's nothing that's stopping me from taking my pay and, you know, doing all of the stuff, buying groceries, paying my bills, and then taking my, you know, my leftover money. And, okay, I'll buy a Brian Niemeyer book this week because I really like Brian Niemeyer's work. And then next week, okay, I'll get a Galaxy's Edge book. And then, you know, the next week and, and so on and so forth. There's, there's nothing stopping one individual customer from supporting multiple people. Like uh, Bradford said, there's no finite pie here. It's, it's just all economic growth, baby, and everybody benefits from everybody doing well. You're here. Yes, this is true. So uh, let me check the time. How long have we been going on for? Um, we're at about two and a half hours. Did you guys have anything else that you wanted to say? No, I got to get going, actually. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Yeah, I think this is a good time to cut, you know, to, you know, to, you know call it a day. Oh well, yeah. All right, that sounds like a plan. Well, thank you three, uh, thank you three gentlemen for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Strong work all around, everybody. It has been a really fun conversation, and I think a lot of people will uh, get a lot of benefit from listening to it. Not just because of, you know, a Gundam for us, but also all of the great oh, advice you guys dealt out. Um. Of so yeah uh once again thank you guys for uh coming on the show um and there will be links to all of your stuff down in the description um i'll i'll put you know like book links to amazon and things like that um see if we can get you a couple of extra sales yeah and thanks uh, and to the, the readers for reading and listeners for listening absolutely yeah. 
And yeah, I was about to say thank you, thank you everybody for listening. I hope that you all enjoyed the show, and uh, I will catch you all next week. Peace out, everybody. All right, peace out. Good evening. All right, well, that was the podcast, and thank you all very much for listening. Uh, as is usual, go and check out all of the links in the description to Brian Bradford and Rawls Projects. And as for me, I will just do the sponsors and go ahead and get out of y'all's hair. So, if you like what I do here and you want to support me, there are a few ways that you can do that. The first up is Kofi. So, Kofi is basically an internet tip jar. If you want to throw me a couple of shekels, then uh, this is the easiest way that you can do that. They do uh, PayPal and, I think, banking processing. So, that's just about the easiest way if you want to throw me a couple of shekels. Next up, we have the Cat Kimbridge audiobooks. So, the Cat Kimbridge Chronicles is a military sci-fi series that uh, takes religion as read, essentially. It doesn't treat it like something for stupid people, but it absolutely delivers on the action. So if you guys want a good action-filled military science fiction series, then I cannot recommend a better one than The Cat Kimridge Chronicles. I did 6, 7, and 8 in the series. So if you want to hear me read these books to you, then go and pick those up. They are linked on the right-hand side of my blog and in the store page. Next up, we have the Dimension Bucket Media books. So we have Hell's Five-Minute Tales of Horror, which are microfiction written by Hell Richards, none of which will take you over five minutes to read. So if you're into some good, short, creepy tales, then I highly recommend this book. Dimension of Cobwebs is a collection of weird fiction from Grandmasters of the Craft, at the time when weird fiction was just becoming a thing. So if you want to find out where weird fiction came from, this is where you want to go. So we have H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, H.G. Wells, Hans Heinz Ewers, Bram Stoker, and a few other writers as well. I think there's like 30 stories in this, so you're absolutely getting your money's worth with this anthology. Darkest of Dreams is an anthology of horror stories written by the Dimension Bucket Media crew. So that's me, Christopher Warren, William Harmer, and Connor Goff. And we each have a very different take on the horror genre. So if you want to get some original horror stories, this is where you want to go. A Man Upstairs by Christopher Warren is a collection of freeform poetry with a very serious horror bent, although there are certain poems in there that are more comical, but most of them are horror poems. So if you like you some good horror poetry, I would recommend you go and pick this one up. Cracked, that's C-R-A-C-K apostrophe D by Connor Goff, is a story of a man who discovers a horrible secret behind reality, and he has to figure out what's going on before reality breaks down around him. So if you're into psychological horror, I highly recommend you go and pick that one up. Phoenix on the Sword is first published Conan story ever. So if you want to find out where Conan came from, 
this is where you need to go. Conan is king of Aquilonia. There is a plot to depose him and assassinate him and install a puppet government in his stead. And there is a subplot with a Stygian warlock who summons a baboon demon that Conan has to go on a dream quest underneath a mountain to get a sword to fight. If you're looking for the beginnings of sword and sorcery, this is where you want to go. Next up, we have Aaron Clary. Aaron is a former banker and economist who blogs at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. And he also runs a consulting business at assholeconsulting.com. Assholeconsulting.com. I'm not making that URL up. So if you are looking for the straight dope on any questions that you might have about life, the universe, and everything, barring medical and legal advice, Aaron, for a nominal fee, is willing to help you out. He also has uh, several books out, a few of which I have done the audiobooks for, so most recently, I did Poor Richard's Retirement, which is a treatise on how it is possible to achieve retirement in today's economic environment. So if you have any questions about retirement, this is the place that you need to go. I also did enjoy the decline, accepting and living with the death of the United States. So if you're worried about the way that the country is going, then I highly recommend that you pick this book up. It will help you realize what you can and can't control and let go of the things that you can't control and take hold of the things that you can control and start to orient your life so that you are more fully able to enjoy the decline. I also did Reconnaissance Man, which is a book about how you shouldn't go directly from high school into college. You should take a few years to earn some money and figure out what you actually want to do and where you want to do it. And this book gives some very, very salient tips on how to accomplish both of those goals. So, go and look up Aaron Clary, once again, captaincapitalism.blogspot.com, and make sure to buy his books, especially the ones that I have done the audiobooks for. Next up, we have John E. Boyle. John is an author who has written the excellent novel Queen's Heir, that's H-E-I-R, as in the heir to the queen, not the air that the queen breathes. And it is a sword and sorcery fantasy novel set among the Hittites at the end of the Bronze Age, which is a historical era that I have not seen too many authors tackle. And it has everything that you could ask for in a sword and sorcery book. It has swords. It has sorcery. It has ghosts, demons, werewolves, trials by combat, ancient mysteries, and everything else that you could possibly want from a sword and sorcery novel you will find in this book. So go and pick up Queen's Air on Amazon. You will find a link on my blog. Next up, we have the affiliate account. So the way the affiliate accounts work is you click on the link, it takes you to the website, you buy whatever you want, and it doesn't cost you anymore, it doesn't cost the seller anymore, but the website that you're buying it from gives me a kickback for sending you over there. So first up, we have Amazon. So if you want to buy any of these amazing books by any of these amazing authors that I have on my show, then uh, I would appreciate it if you would go to my website first, jimfair138.blogspot.com, 
and uh, click on that Amazon link and it'll take you right over there and you can get what you're looking for. Next up, we have MyComicShop.com. So if you're looking for old or new comics by the big two or independent uh, small publishers, then you will more than likely be able to find it here. And if they don't have it, they will be able to list it and you can wish list it. And then eventually when they get it in stock, they will send you an email that they have it. I've never had a problem with this service and that's why I run an affiliate account for them. I've never had damaged comics uh, show up on my doorstep. It's always timely. These people know what they're doing. And uh, if you are not living near a local comic book shop, then this is the place that you want to go to get stuff delivered right to your door. Next up, we have Right Stuff Anime. That's stuff with one F. So if you are into the weeb shit, like the mangoes and the animus, then uh, I cannot recommend a better online store than this one. If you want to get your DVDs, your Blu-rays, even VHSs, they also have the manga in collected volumes, as well as various other items, such as uh, Nendoroid figurines, the Gundam figurines, the uh, Figma figurines, which are basically the titty figurines, uh, they also have hats, t-shirts, jackets, uh, hentai, porn, as in actual real people fucking porn if you're into paying for that for some reason. And once again, I've never had a problem with this website. They always send me my stuff uh, in a nicely put together package with no damage when I, when I get it. So I highly recommend WriteStuffAnime.com if you're into the weeb shit. Uh, next up, we have the ads on the blog. So if you are interested in advertising with me, then it is $20 a month. And for that, you get a post on the blog advertising your thing and telling people where they can go and find it. An ad on the blog for a month right up at the top where everybody can see it that will link people to your thing. A spot in the sponsor role on the podcast, which is what I'm doing right now, as well as posts on my social media accounts, letting people know that this thing is over here. And if you like audio and video advertisements for your thing that you can put up on YouTube or BitChute or in your podcast feed is I will put it into my podcast feed. Uh, and there is no obligation if the first month doesn't work out for you. There's no obligation to pay for another month. It's entirely up to your discretion. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, just get in touch and we will hammer out the details. Lastly, there is the Bandcamp. The Bandcamp is where I am putting my independent narrations not affiliated with Dimension Bucket Media. So if you are looking for some of my older narrations, then you can find some stuff from 2014 over there. Or if you're looking for my newer stuff, then I have two short stories up for, I want to say, $2 a piece, uh, which are The Judge's House by Bram Stoker and The Haunter of the Ring by Robert E. Howard. So if you want to find out how good I am at doing audiobooks, then just go and pick those two up. Uh, but those are over there if you want some good short stories for cheap. All right, that is 
the sponsor role. And uh, thanks again to Brian Bradford and Roll for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Go check out all their links in the description. And I will catch you all next week. Peace out, everybody.